Welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast. I am your co-host, Neve, and I'm joined here by my other co-host, Connor. Hello, everybody. Um, and we also have a guest on this episode, which in the intro episode I said would be the first ever guest on Ghost Divers. And I'm I'm sorry, Brad, that is no longer the case. The The person who runs the network ended up jumping on a question bucket. but um, uh, I'm heartbroken. <laughs> Yeah, it was going to be all poignant. It was like you were the person who got me into anime in the first place. I mean, I was like kind of watching anime, but oh, you were I'm the so one sorry. on Live Journal being like, hey, you should like really check out these uh, shows and not just like watch what's currently airing on Adult Swim or like Toonami or whatever. I'm sorry. Um, I was and you were like, you should watch. Teenager. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, you should watch Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, and then what I did was I read the manga and then I watched Neon Genesis Evangelion. And then we talked about it a bunch. And then we didn't talk to each other other for like 15 years and now yeah. we're going to talk about it a bunch well, so we, anyway we do just you... have a moment where since to celebrate the fact that we have a guest can we all just stand by creepily and and clap and say congratulations <laughs> congratulations um, congratulations to us for for, ha- for having a guest yeah um, you know it's i feel like it's a really great optimistic moment <laughs> I'm, so yeah, do you do you want to do a little intro? Uh, for myself, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, yeah, that makes sense that I would have to do that. Uh, yeah, I'm like a writer. I mostly write about music, but um, you know, I write about general art objects, you know, so like such as movies and once in a while anime, which uh, you know. I would love to do more of, even though I like only love maybe four, five shows in total. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I saw Evangelion the first few episodes for the first time when I was thirteen, and I just owned like an ADV VHS uh, of the first two episodes, and I wore that shit out. Uh, I watched it over and over again to the point where I can't. I can't actually watch the first four episodes of the show anymore. They are like uh, committed to memory. I just like they're just white noise. 
Uh, anyway, so, and I didn't see the full show until I was 15 years old because, uh, uh, I was in band camp for marching band. Uh, like I'm really not expecting, I wasn't expecting (laughs) that sentence to go there. I, I'm not really doing myself any, I'm like not painting myself as a, a cool person when I was an adolescent at all, am I? Uh, but I, uh, I was in marching band and I did find people who owned every DVD of the show. Uh, they were missing one. That's a whole point of uh, annoyance in my history. But but I, like, borrowed everything. And I finally watched the show the whole way through. And it was the fucking best. And I was 14. And I was just, like, completely blown away. It was the first... Uh, maybe after Akira, it was the first, like, thing to do that to me. Where it just, like, detached and became something beyond any expectation I could have put on it. And I tried to seek that feeling over and over again from art in whatever form it could take. Whether it was music or regular degular movies, (laughs) you know, etc. So, like... Uh, one of the reasons I'm a critic, like, is probably because I had such a profound response to Evangelion as a kid. Uh, yeah. So, sorry, that was a long introduction. <laughs> no, it was great. No uh, if you think that was a long, like, monologue, you don't even... Just wait. <laughs> Excellent. All right. <laughs> just wait. It's going to be like um, Evangelion. Yeah. It's just like long monologues. The last two episodes, especially. Yeah, you're fine staying up until, like, 2 a.m., right? Yeah, and I mean, I'm ready. so today we're going to be covering episodes 21 through 26 of the show uh which is i always want to say the end of evangelion but it is not that is a movie (laughs) damn you honor but it's the end of the show neon genesis evangelion um so shall we get into it i actually i was going to do this before but then we got distracted uh if people want to like pick episodes to do synopses for um we can um, just do this live. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll start out. Okay. Um, episode 21. So Futsuki is interrogated by Sela about the past in Gendo Ikari, providing a frame for a series of flashbacks to events from roughly 1999 to 2005, which, as we know, are the year before and the first five years after the second impact. Um, we see how Yui and Gendo met and started a relationship, uh, the founding of a proto-nerve organization called Geheren, uh, a little of Misato and Ritsuko's meeting and connections to Geheren. Notable scenes near the end include Ritsuko's mother killing a child Rei, uh, and then herself, and Kaji's death, and Misato subsequently hearing his final message to her, which he leaves on her answering machine. So, yeah, it's, it's a rather cheery episode to start things off. It's, yeah... It's the it's the lore episode. It's like behind the music nerve edition. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's a it was it's one of my favorites. I love a deepening mystery, and this is the, the part where you get to see like it developed from the beginning, albeit not in a way that's really giving you any satisfying answers to any of the questions you have, but like just enough to drag you further into it. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about with the lore and Ava is that I think this is part of its overall narrative style, but there's a, a tantalizing aspect of 
of these like exposition sequences um, where for every question that is answered, like it just creates several more. <laughs> yeah. Um, like continuing to maintain this sense of a like mysterious, dark, you know, shadowy, like a noble world um, that all of these characters are trying to navigate. Yeah. And um, this is a great episode because it's, it, it does start to like flesh out some of the individual like histories of these characters and then specifically tying them together in ways, but nonetheless, like still creates a, a lot of questions. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Um, what is Kaji doing ever in the show? <laughs> no idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's like a, He's like a really shitty double agent if he's a double agent. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, Neve, I know you had some some notes. Normally, would you just normally I let Neve like yeah, do sorry, notes and then please do. Uh, no, 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 um, no, it's no, it's it's fine. The like this is an episode where like I feel like I enjoy this episode a lot, and yet in terms of what we've been talking about on the podcast, I'm like. Like, it is tying these things together in these ways, but in these ways where I'm like, we have all these threads that we're currently pulling on, and this is just, like, is, like, connecting them in certain ways. But, um, yeah, I, I think, like, the biggest thing that really stands out to me in this, and it's a thing that we haven't talked about as much previously because I haven't been trying to give away too much of, like, what's going to happen, but uh, this is where we really get the setup of, like, oh, here's Ritsugo's mother the relationship that she had with Gendo, like how that then leads to her death and also her killing Ray, which especially when you first watch this episode, like they don't quite make it clear that Ray died, but then, you know, we can now talk about the full ending of the series. Like this was the first time that Ray died supposedly. And then we also then get the cycle coming with Ritsuko also, I don't get what, what she sees in Gendo. My read on Ritsuko is that she's like incredibly gay for Misato. It's, it's been written all over the series. Um, comments about Misato's coffee making skills. Uh, even in here, like Misato's weird or, uh, Ritsuko's weird jealousy over Misato being with Kaji. Um, I, I don't understand how Ritsuko ends up falling for Gendo, but, you know, um, <laughs> God damn it. You are so right. Uh, I need to I need to mention this theory to my friend who uh, I I've been rewatching the show over the past few over the past month with somebody who's never seen it before, which is the most fun thing in the world to do, uh, which is why I've done it like it feels like thousands of times now that I've introduced people to the show uh, and uh, and she just like unbidden said out of nowhere. Ritsu goes gay. And I was like, well, the show doesn't really support that theory, like, technically. But I I like that you said that. And then now that, you, now that you've mentioned all of the Misato stuff, I'm like, oh, shit, I wasn't even thinking about that. Oh, my yeah. God. Like, huh. there's a part of me that's like, so they, the show is canonically like, okay, Ritsuko is, like, fucking Gendo. Yeah. Which, we're jumping ahead, but this is how we do it on on. <laughs> ghost divers is we talk about the yeah. first episode at length because we end up talking about all six episodes at the very beginning but anyway like that is like the text of the show there's just so much like other stuff that seems to be suggesting this connection that Ritsuko has with Misato that I'm like she she still like has to be bi 
Like, yeah. there's no other way that I can read this character. And honestly, her, her like, really wanting to be with Misato and then just, like, fucking Gendo because it's, like, this thing that she can do makes more sense to me for this character and, like, for everything that's been set up around her, um, including... In an early episode, Connor introduced this theory of every time you see a like fan service shot in Ava, it's from the point of view of another character. Yeah. And there's a fan service shot of Misato where it's just Misato and Ritsuko alone in a room. And I'm like, Ritsuko's gay. It's yeah. it's <laughs> We're actually um, in Ritsuko's yeah, gaze. <laughs> We're installed there. Um, <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, uh-huh. oh, what was I thinking? Sorry. Um, I have some some comments on this since we're on the subject. Um, so to to continue to build on this idea, I think I don't know where to start. Um, okay, so with Misato and Ritsuko, I think more more to support this theory. Um, in this episode, we have as part of these like flashback sequences, we have Ritsuko. I think it's an excerpt from the letter that she's writing to her mother. Um, where she talks about like her her meeting Misato, yeah, and she describes R- Ritsuko describes like her alienate her generalized alienation, where I think she says something to the effect of like others will only look at me from afar. Um, my name is like intimidating to people, and there, there's there's some like there's something going on where you know she's she's completely alienated from everybody else, but. Katsuragi like breaks through that. Um, we see Mits- uh, Misato and Ritsuko sitting together. Um, we see like the origin of their relationship, and I think like this is something that when Ava holds out things like this, they, they almost always have significance. So when it holds out a certain like pairing and with remarks of like. Oh, like I was alienated from everybody else, but Misato like changed that. Yeah. Um, I think it's something that like we're encouraged to take seriously, and this relationship is like very um, obviously complicated <laughs> as the series goes on, and even in this episode, it's complicated in some like very um, very thorny ways that again is like characteristic of Ava. Um, but I also think it's the most like meaningful relationship that Ritsuko has, and there's there's definitely a sexual dimension to that. Um, and yeah, another, this is like a small instance, but just another thing that really jumped out to me this time too was because this time I'm watching it through. It's been a while since I've rewatched Ava, and this time I'm watching it through out as like a trans woman who is married to a woman and being like. I'm reading all characters as gay until proven otherwise. Um, but there's a part where Ritsuko's mother is talking to her and asks about Misato. And I forget exactly what like the original question is, but then Ritsuko basically says like, oh, Misato's in Germany right now. And then her mother responds, oh, so it's a long distance relationship. And then that's the moment where Ritsuko brings up, oh, she already broke up with Kaji. And it's like, the whole conversation up until that point has not brought up Kaji. And yeah. so there was a part in that moment where I was like, oh, I, Ritsuko's mother is saying, like, you and Misato are in a long-distance relationship now. <laughs> There's, like, a double meaning there. Yeah. yeah. 
I watched, well, I mean, I had to watch these episodes twice, I guess, because I watched both the director's cut and the uh, television cut. But I think I had that same, <laughs> I had that same moment the second time I watched it, weirdly enough, where it was like, what is the, is, is she actually talking about Misato? Jeez. Um, yeah. So now, yeah, I'm having like this whole awakening now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, it's too um, bad uh, that we, we can cut this out from the conversation, I guess, if it's too much of a spoiler for End of Evangelion. It's too bad we don't find out who, who Ritsuko's true love is in that film. <laughs> That's awfully convenient of them to like just not even include that. <laughs> uh, anyway. <yeah. laughs> uh, um, the one thing I'll add is, on the subject of Gendo and Ritsuko, um, like, re- related to this, in our early episodes we talk about the people at nerve and like how these individuals are like identifying with nerve ideologically and how they're like their actions and their like expressed feelings are in like varying degrees of alignment with nerve, which is obviously like analogous to like alignment with Gendo. And I think then we we talked about how Ritsuko is probably the the one the person nerve who is like most clearly aligned with Gendo, um, in terms of like mission and ideology, um, and action, and I think another important like I think the show is um, setting out like that the undercurrent of that alignment is a psychological alignment um, that they both have a very similar like psychology in terms of their um, in terms of their like approach to others, their, their, their generalized like closedness um, and their like the way that they sublimate like everything in their work um, and just are like, and deny and cut off like their human relationships. So I think that is like one avenue for explaining Ritsuko and Gendo, this really weird relationship. Um, I, I just, I think that the show is like setting them up as parallels in terms of their psychology. And then like, you know, that leading to um, this like greater ide- level of identification that we see play out. Uh, I I had a theory about Ritsuko and Gendo. I mean, it's not really about... It's not really even a sufficient explanation for why anybody would be with Gendo, because obviously it's a bad idea on the face of it. (laughs) It really is. The main message of the show is do not date or even (laughs) attempt to be friends with (laughs) Gendo Akari. Oh, and you better hope that you are not related to him. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it's like hard to account for. Uh, but I also think that Ritsuko is in some way kind of caught in this doom loop of repeating her mother's life. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with her relationship with her mother. And in fact, I think her relationship with Gendo is a relationship with her mother pure and simple it's like it's almost got nothing to do with him except that ultimately like he is also somebody who controls the people around him 
through withholding affection. And as we, as becomes clear, once you've watched the show, like maybe a few times, but also maybe it's like really obvious on the face of it. It took me a while to pick up on this, uh, through sexually abusing the people around him. So yeah, it's whole thing's yeah, fucked I up. <laughs> we, I think we can, um, well, first of all, I'm glad that we're all, we're all in alignment that Gendo is like definitely the antagonist of. Yeah, Jerry. no doubt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, fuck, fuck and, that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then um, I think it's definitely worth looking at, like when we get to the scenes, if we end up discussing the scenes with Akagi and Gendo and then like what what that means for Ritsuko and Gendo's relationship. Because I, I definitely think, I mean, there's absolutely a strong like linkage there. Yeah. Um, do we want to go? I feel like Gendo is a big one to focus on here. So do we want to go to Gendo and Yui or Gendo? And um, I always forget her mom's first name. And so I always just say Ritsuko's mom. Uh, uh, yeah, I just call her Dr. Akagi. Because I think... Yeah. I don't really... Ugh. Yeah, I can't remember if we even hear her name. You think since I watched I the episode feel strongly twice. between the two. If you can't remember it after watching it however many times. Ritsuko's yeah. mom. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe it's not in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think... Maybe we could just start out with, like, on Gendo specifically. Yeah, I like, I like the idea of talking about him and Yui because it's still... It's, like, very confusing and not... You don't learn a lot. So yeah. m- maybe we can fill in some of those gaps. Yeah, so, I think es- especially okay. especially because I think even in this, we are getting specifically the frame of it being Fiyutsuki who is, like, recounting these past events. And I think, like, Evangelion is the kind of show where we should pay attention to that. That is like, this is not necessarily the most objective telling of everything that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And especially around probably Gendo and Yui, because, you know, I think you have a note in here, Brad of like, you, we learn here, Fiyutsuki, the guy who spends every waking moment next to Gendo totally hates the dude's, <laughs> dude's guts. Yeah. And so of course he's like looking at Gendo and Yui's relationship and being like, Gendo doesn't even love her. Like she was my promising student and blah, blah, blah. Like he's this like horrible man. Um, and I and love it's like her. just trying to access research and resources and power. And then, yeah, I think end of Ava most explicitly kind of gives us Fiyutsuki probably loves her. And so it like, it's hard looking at the relationship. It is still so like difficult to fully read what's going on because it seems throughout that like Yui very genuinely cares about and loves Gendo mm-hmm. um, and like talks about like, Oh, I, I, w- I wish other people could see the Gendo that I see because like, you know, the Gendo that I see like, here's, you know, is, is like this person who's like worth loving. And we are specifically throughout the rest of the series, seeing a Gendo who is like a terrible person, but is a terrible person without Yui. And it's then hard to unpack like, has he always been this terrible person or is he a terrible person because he lost her? Um, and he's just like not coping with it or dealing with it in any productive way. And it is turning into an absolute monster. Um, 
you know, I, I, I'm at, in this exact moment suddenly thinking of in the like art book for Persona 4, um, the character designer for so in the like game persona 4 the main character goes to stay with his uncle and his like uncle's daughter and the wife is dead and the the designer specifically talks about how he designed the daughter to look nothing like the father so that whether you realize it or not when you first play the game subconsciously you are aware that every time that he looks at his daughter he is seeing his dead wife and uh, I think there's a certain amount of that happening in Ava as well, where like Shinji is specifically designed to, to appear feminine. Uh, like Sadamoto talks about this um, and definitely has some similarities with Yui in this way that like is some of Gendo's like horrible treatment of Shinji also specifically about like feeling terrible about like seeing in Shinji, his dead wife and also feeling terrible about that and like trying to just initiate this second impact to try and like end all pain and suffering and maybe hopefully reunite with his wife um so yeah all of this to say like it's very i don't have a final read on was gendo and yui's relationship actually good and healthy or was it like was he being abusive back then as well and that like tension i think is actually what's like most interesting to me is not really knowing like what was the relationship, but I'm also wondering like what read other people have on it. It's, it's weird. I like one of the reasons I like this episode is that it's very, it's got all of this uneasy stuff happening around everybody's intentions. <laughs> like even Yui is kind of a shady character. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah. because like Gendo wasn't tied to Sele initially. She was. And Sele, those guys suck. Like, they're really bad yeah. people. <laughs> so uh, it's just very, the whole thing is very curious. Um, Yui obviously is is probably tied to unsavory people because she wants to like figure out a way to shape the science that she's working in in a way that doesn't murder a ton of people. But of course, that's not really how it turns out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, I also, uh, I, I don't know, Gendo's already kind of like a real piece of shit by the time the second impact happens, so I think there's also evidence there that he's just kind of got this shadow in him. And I think it's similar, probably, we can get into this more in the last two episodes, to the shadows that everyone has inside of them, but especially Shinji. Mm. Uh and he just has no health. Well, like none of these characters have any healthy ways of dealing with this. But Gendo especially has gone in the complete negative direction. He's like zoomed all the past, all past the ways of being a human that relates to other people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, if. So this is going to be my first apology for making reference to something that we talked about in in prior episode, but my, I do have an overall read like on Gendo and and why he's the antagonist of the series. Um, The series, one of the like primary themes of the series, it seems to me, and I I honestly don't think this is very arguable because it hits you over the head with it, 
um, has to deal has to do with the like human condition, which is being like divided subjects. So being like an I who has to coexist with others, but has like in- inevitably like an insurmountable distance between you, like just as an existential fact. And all of the pain and like suffering that goes along with that, with, you know, having to live in a world of others, um, being divided from them. Gendo is a, Gendo represents like one way of responding to that, which is on one level, he represents this like way of responding to it, which I think the series is framing as like, fundamentally like dangerous and neurotic um which is he he will not accept the um he's not willing to accept like otherness um he's not willing to like accept the pain that goes along with that and so he's searching like well in the first instance he's trying to subordinate like everyone else to himself because again, he doesn't have respect for like um, the otherness and the subjectivity of others. But then that becomes literalized in human instrumentality, um, where he's literally trying to like destroy otherness um, and become this god that like has absorbed and subordinated like literally every other consciousness in the world to himself. And this episode kind of like fleshes out that arc a little bit. Where like the first time we see him, he we see him like immediately in conflict with others, because um, he's just gotten like in this fight. He's being built out by Futsky. Um, and he says like I think one of the first things he says is I'm not very good at being white. I'm used to be treated coldly, which is like again um, not only you're giving evidence to the fact of like okay this is someone who like has trouble with this alienation. Um, this recurring alienation that we see for all these characters in the series, like Gendo is someone who is like uh, almost defined immediately as someone who like struggles with this. But also like, you know, in, in this moment reminiscent of Shinji as well, maybe a different, an alternate future for Shinji. Um, but then we get the moment of like Yui's death uh, and Futsuki saying like, okay, after that he changed and became fixated on like the human instrumentality project um so i think my read on it is that like the seeds of what gendo is now like were always there and he was just like these pre-existing personality traits were probably like potentially like warped and aggravated by like yubi's death to the point where he just becomes like absorbed in this full-blown neurosis um which then is like articulated as abuse and like you know this uh human instrumentality project so that's kind of my like overall read on on gendo that's i completely agree with that that's a great read yeah like that's a yeah all right close the book on gendo yeah we're done (laughs) any any other comments i want to do for this episode or should we just move on to episode 22 uh okay what else happens oh uh 
There, I, I guess I should mention some director's cut stuff just for your edification. Oh, yeah. If anybody want, if like you, you can include this or not, I guess. Um, the director's cut stuff is uh, you get to witness the second impact in the beginning. Mostly that scene is interesting because it's like three layered monologues. One of like a team of the Katsuragi research team. One of uh, people who are dealing with the immediate like second impact stuff. Uh, and then Gendo and Fuyutsuki talking on a like third tier of monologue over them, just owning the shit out of the scientists who are talking below them. Uh, and, and then the second impact happens and it's rad. Like, you know, an angel spreads its wings and everybody's in love. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's uh, beyond that. Uh, there's some additional stuff uh, in the flashbacks. You get to see Fuyutsuki briefly living on a boat, um, but which is mostly there to, uh, reinforce uh, the climate impact of the second impact. Uh, A- Evangelion is a show about climate change, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and the rebuild movies are actually even even more so. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's mostly there to reinforce like like it's been summer for a year. You know, it's 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 a really like nice just textural scene. The director's cuts are like. I ultimately really love all of the additions, uh, except for one. And we can get into that when we talk about the Kaoru episode. So, um, but, but I think that's really, that was the major stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going I'll, off of memory. I'll, I didn't take notes. I'll They're take worth watching. More, uh, I'll take more scenes of Fuchsky on a boat. Yeah. Sounds great. That's pretty sick. Um. <laughs> Um, also, so, if any listeners are wondering if we're ever going to do the rebuild movies, uh, it will, given the premise of this podcast, it will have to be when the movies are no longer relevant. So, right. yeah. How how old are they again? Um, well, I, know I one mean, just came out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Technically, they are... I want to do them all together. So, I, it's going to be at least a few years. Rebuild one came out one? in two thousand eight. I want to say. Okay. Yeah, that's too recent. I was in We're college. divers, not corpse divers. <laughs> um, so I uh, I do want to touch on like this final scene here, um, where like Misato, you know, oh yeah, gets the answering machine message. Yeah, oh yeah, that sorry. Ka- learns that Kaji has died. That's important. Um, Bye, Kaji. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, so, and the whole the other thing that happens here too is this like. I mean, this will come up more later, and we'll, we can talk about it more in that context. But I think also we we see in this moment like Shinji aware that Misato is going through something, and then mm. just being like, "I'm gonna go back to my room," like very intentionally <laughs> choosing to like not do anything. Yeah. No thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, like this final scene. Um, I have a note here, so I'm just gonna do it, and then I'm sure we'll have the, you know discussion. Um, Again, like this is a characteristic thing that, that we've we've talked about a lot in the previous episodes, but you know, Ava's so focused on human relationships and you know, everything that it seems to think is fundamental to human relationships, including like, you know, this frustration and alienation, um, paired with, you know, also like love and comfort, um, you know, all, all of these things like together in this complex 
alchemy, um, you know, being necessary. And, you know, the end of this relationship is like a devastating one. You know, Kaji's dead, like Misato, and not only, you know, is losing someone that she loves, but also like the, this relationship is ending without the fulfillment that, you know, she wants and needs. Kaji seems to understand this as well, making reference to like the words that he couldn't say. So, you know, she's confronting like, again, the, you know, this tragedy, um, uh, Shinji has to confront his own ability or somehow unwillingness to help her. And I think I'm just going to put this out here because it's relevant. Um, Ava, like as a series, it, it puts its characters through hell so much. Um, we'll, you know, we'll probably see that later. I don't know. I can't remember what happens in the later episodes. Um, but all of these like individual character arcs are drawn to like propel them into these extremes of despair. Um, and then to make the viewer like go through this as well. And I think it's fair to ask, like, is this just sadism? Um, for me, the answer is no. I think Ava, it takes very seriously, like the reality of human suffering. Um, it wants to grapple fully with all of the shittiest parts of being human. And all these individual character arcs are working to do this because it's a necessary prerequisite um, for asking these other bigger questions um, that Ava seems to want to ask about the value of humanity and being human and pulling punches or ignoring or papering over like the worst suffering possible um, in a way can only cheapen this process of like reckoning with being human and then, you know, cheapen the impact of the choice that you make at the end, which I think will figure strongly into my reading of End of Ava. Um, but yeah. I think Ava inoculated me against like being able to notice when a show is really treating their characters like shit. <laughs> is this yeah. sadism? I don't know. I saw Evangelion when I was 14. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's probably, the <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was not too much older when I watched it. So, um, it's... I don't know. I just... One thing I, I kind of want to bring up in relation to here, and I think it's one of those, like, I've been talking around throughout this, the tension that I've had returning to Evangelion. And I think some of it is because, like, when we were friends in high school, Brad, I was, like, a, a very deeply depressed teen who did not, I was, like, at the very early stages of grappling with, like, some sort of queer sexuality, but was, I figured I was trans when I was 25. So like it, there was still a good ways for me, like actually figuring out and, um, also like embracing queerness in this way that has been very important and meaningful to me. And like, I'm a, a far happier person now. Um, I am not suicidal anymore. And I was when we were friends in, in high school. Um, I have not self-harmed since high school, which is a thing I've talked about on this podcast. Um, and so like returning to this has been this thing of like me returning to, this is a show that I think is like so deeply steeped into depression 
and that that was like such a part of like i i really connected with the show because of how seriously it it took being depressed um and in returning to it i i one i i've been happy with the show it is like i was scared that i was going to return to it and hate it and i've actually returned to it and been like no actually the show's like still doing some pretty good interesting things but i am still butting up against this um difference in worldview that has happened within me um and i'm actually going to specifically bring up friend of the show uh joao who i was talking to recently um and he was talking about like i had been talking about taoism and being like what are some like good texts to get into taoism and we ended up talking somewhat about how both of us originally came to buddhism and like how how does taoism differ from buddhism and like where where the connections which is around like zen buddhism um but i think one of the fundamental differences that exists between buddhism and taoism is a worldview about what like human existence is and i think buddhism is just like fundamentally more pessimistic about what it means to be a human and that like suffering is a thing that is intrinsic to like existing in the world and having any sort of desires or wants and that the ideal is to like be free of that which i think is so much of what um i don't think that this show fully leans into buddhism because I, I my read on the ending is actually like pushing against this initial thing of like we should just escape from suffering which is what shinji is like driven to it seems to be what like gendo is driven to it's what mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that we're going to get into with the third impact is about um whereas Taoism's perspective is that, like, in order for us to understand anything, the way that the human brain brain is um, situated or the way that it operates is so. Like, the concept of yin and yang is actually like I think the way that a lot of people understand it in the West is actually like a corruption of it, and that the truth of it is that there's actually this thing called the Wu that is the like actual truth of the thing and it it is like the yin and the yang are both contained within each other and that talking about yin and yang is actually specifically talking about the way that the human being the human brain understands things as contrasts and so we create contrasts even when there aren't any and so for us to be able to understand like what is good we also have to understand what is bad or like we like we have to always have like there will always be suffering and then there will always be like pleasure or happiness because we have to like experience both of these things in order to actually be able to experience either of them as like just the nature of what human beings are. And so that the point of life is actually just to, in every moment that we are existing, even if we are dreaming that we are a butterfly and we aren't sure if we're like a butterfly or a human, when we're dreaming that we're a butterfly, we should then just like try to be a good, happy butterfly who like makes the world better and is doing what it can to like enjoy the life that it has in that moment. And then when we wake up and we're like Zhuangzi, who is dreaming of being a butterfly, we do the same thing. That's actually the true story, like the true purpose of the the... Um, story of the butterfly is actually about this framing of like it doesn't really matter whether or not reality exists it is like what your current experience is and so just like within the experience whether or not it is true or not try to like embody that experience in this way where you are like fully experiencing life and me coming to Taoism and coming into this other understanding of suffering as actually just like a necessary part of human life and not something that you have to be stuck in or that you have to like try to escape, but that you can instead like do the, the 
whole thing of like actionless non-action where you are just trying to position yourself in life where you can like experience the most joy and you can do the most good. Um, and that, that is like a thing that is, it's called actionless non-action because, or like actionless action, because it is a thing that you are achieving, not through like necessarily acting in the moment, but through trying to position yourself within society or like within the world. Um, you know, the full term is like the, the day, which is the individual versus the Tao, like trying to orient yourself in such a way that like you are taking care of the Tao and the Tao is taking care of you. And once you reach that point, then things will just like should move smoothly for you. Um, and it's like a continual process because everything changes. But um, and so like this is a, a framing that I came to that I think is so far beyond what the ending of this series is going to get to that like this wallowing and suffering is still hard for me to return to as someone who has largely found ways to move past it. Um, even as I still like have self-harm ideation sometimes, but I still like, I know how to position myself so that it doesn't get worse. And so this is like a big tension that I've had with the show throughout a lot of it is that I think it's just so, it's so much more like, in that moment of suffering and in that moment of like depression and pain um, that it, it, it has been hard for me to rewatch it, but I think it's still like a good series and it, it's portraying these things. Well, it's also just like, I'm very glad I'm not there anymore. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I, I can totally, yeah. <laughs> I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I re- no, I love, I love that you uh, have, uh, such a complex understanding of where you're coming from at it right now. Uh, I will say that your description of Taoism really heavily resembles like the last 20 or so lines in the last episode. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so it does, I, I feel like it does sort of gesture at, at what you're talking about because they have, they have yeah. all of those, those lines about your truth and your position within the world, which is something that, you know, <laughs> I, I will uh, say, it's yeah, hard to I explain, think, but I it's like we we will we will get there we'll get when that. we get there. But I think this show points to an escape for Shinji, but it is like a first step. Yeah, um, no, it's and very I'm glad much that I'm beyond that first step. And, and yeah, no, like this is very much. I mean, it's not. I don't want to call it baby's first depression, but it's but it's like Hideaki Yano is like unpacking the whole thing, and we have to sift through all of it. <laughs> and it's yeah. just yeah. that's kind of that's the show <laughs> so yeah it's funny how i think in many ways like the conclusions that that you like articulated we've about like the purpose of suffering and the stance that we should take in relation to it i think in fact like i do think the series like gets there Um, yeah but where i differ from you like brad is that i think it gets there like with end of ava um and that's why like of course this might change because like i've only seen it one time um and i'm just like you know i'm remembering it but i have a pretty strong like it made a strong impression on me and so so I, i i'm reasonably confident in this reading like right now although we, maybe we can laugh at this later when i change my yeah mind. um i look forward to your end of evangelion episode 
My, uh, I've seen the movie so many times, and yet I'm like, hmm, are my ideas about it solid? Probably not. They never are. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like my, my impression of it is that, is the, for me, that movie is is less psychological and more metaphysical. Um, but I don't know. I'm not attached to that particular thing I just said. So, yeah, we can move on. Uh, <laughs> All right. Wait, we were talking... Uh, sorry, there was something we, I was Yeah, do we want to do episode 22, or do is there anything else we want to touch on? There, there was one thing I wanted to bring up. Have you guys talked at any length about uh, how fucking weird Kaji is? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, we talked about Kaji a lot. Okay, then yeah, we don't have to bring it up. Um, I just... What the fuck is wrong with Kaji? <laughs> but, so, like, my... I know we are like just now reconnecting, Brad. Yeah. Um, I, de- I identify as rat for brat, and I think that Kaji and Misato is a rat for brat relationship. Oh, it's just portrayed I, very badly. I So <laughs> the only thing I like about Kaji is that he's nice to Misato. <laughs> like, <laughs> everything else is, is rough. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's fine. But yeah, I, I, like from that level, yeah, it's absolutely, that's the thing. It's just that he... Yeah. In so many ways, he's like a very misleading character. He says like, for he's like for every true thing he says, that's surrounded by two lies. Uh, yeah, but like you he should, believes. You should listen. When it, when it comes out, you should. I'm listen so excited. To, yeah, and then you should write in the question bucket, and, uh, <laughs> and we can continue this discussion. All right, um, excellent. Because we had a we we touched like so the stuff that you seem to be interested in with Kaji. Um, we we are also interested in, yeah. And we talked at length about <laughs> what an enigma. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. I'm I'm gonna do episode twenty two. So, I, all of these I have like shockingly brief for how intense they are. Mm-hmm. Um. But some of it is just like I want us to just talk about it as a group and not as someone doing a synopsis. So we start with some background into how Asuka lost her mom and her fraught relationship with her parents in general. Um. That's an oversimplification. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Asuka is then also failing to sync with Unit 2 and becoming increasingly distraught about that. Um, another angel attacks, and this is RL, which is a being of light in space with like weird branching wings. It's probably one of my favorite designs visually, but yeah, it's like fully just a weird satellite angel like bird thing. And trying to like prove herself oscar rushes in with uh unit two you know she believes that this is her final chance to prove herself i forget if in the show or, or the manga or both misato also is like this is basically her last chance to like yeah, it's, it's in the show too yeah um and then she's basically immediately hit with a ray of angelic light uh accompanied with the hallelujah chorus and you know, it, it's not doing any physical damage or anything, but they find that it's doing some sort of process of mental contamination. This is going to be in the intro episode, like content warning stuff that we we will record at the end of this episode, and I will throw at the very beginning. But uh, there's definitely some like connotations of rape here, um, as well as the other angel fight we're going to talk about in the next episode. And uh, Genda refuses to let Shinji go out and. Unit one to save Asuka um, is clearly being protective at this point of unit one. Um, And instead they have Ray go up to 
you know, at first she tries to shoot the angel with a positron rifle, uh, but it is too far into space. It cannot pierce the AT field. And so Ray goes down, pulls the Lance of Longinus out of... Um, at this point, you all have watched it. You know that it's Lilith and not Adam, but pulls it out of the crucified being and then hurls it into space, uh, piercing it and like just ripping it to shreds. Um, so that's the episode, you know, just it's just a cool angel fight. <laughs> it's um, uh, it's it's amazing. Uh, yeah. The Lance of Longinus scene is pretty fucking sick. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so <laughs> maybe my. Uh, Okay, we're not talking about episode uh, twenty-four yet, but maybe my annoyance with one of the maybe my annoyance with one of the added scenes is really just more of, of an issue to do with the the whole Adam Lilith MacGuffin is really stupid. I love this show to death. Everything about it, literally everything. Yeah, I you'll, you'll find that <laughs> we're not really like, but we're not really like a huge lore podcast. So. The worst, worst switcheroo. <laughs> like, yeah, I, like, there's so much of just the like, oh, here's the stuff that's like really going on with the angels, and we've just been like, yeah, whatever. Like, <laughs> I, I don't care. Let's get to the psychological drama. What's happening with these characters? Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think the stupidest part is just the fact that it's like, oh, this is Lilith, and you're like watching as a viewer. I'm like. So what the fuck what? I, like what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. Why does that <laughs> and the matter? answer is revealed in the Evangelion video game where you like find out about weird progenitor race stuff. I don't want to like, know they about send... this. I'm sorry. It's dumb. It's dumb. <laughs> I work I, I aggressively work to not know about Ava properties that are that are not the yeah. TV series and the movies. <laughs> sorry. Um, so yeah, apparently the the video game lore is canon. It's Ugh. just also the stupidest fucking shit. Oh my I god! Avoid it if you can. I found out about it once and I hate it. <laughs> you've already you've been um, like contaminated with it, Brad. Yeah, yeah I, I have. Oh yeah, no, that's um, really appropriate for this episode. <laughs> um, uh, the one thing that I want to make a note here, I, I will talk about a lot of the stuff that happens with the manga and Kaworu. Um, when we actually get to that episode, because I think it makes the most sense to like talk about it in the context. But within the manga, Koro actually basically shows up in like episode, what would be episode 19 in terms of the chronology. Um, very briefly shows up. I think it's like 19 or maybe, maybe it's 20. Uh, but if like people have been reading along with the manga, with the show, they will have gotten to a part where for the last episodes we discussed for the last episode, there's just like, you turn a page and then it's like, Sele saying, like Tabris, blah blah blah, and you're just like, what the fuck? Who is this character? Um, <laughs> and then he like doesn't show up for a while, uh, but then reappears here, and basically, a lot of the stuff that's going to happen in episode 24 around Koro meeting Shinji happens a lot earlier in the manga, um, and then basically is like, oh, I'm I'm going to be the fifth child. Like, why don't you take me to Nerve? Um, Koro comes, has a conversation with. Asuka is um, the one who has this, like, so uh, Ray has this line about, like, Unit 2 isn't going to move unless you can open your heart to it, and Koru is actually the one who says that in the manga. Um, and then, like, Koru is, like, standing there in the control room while this, fi like, fight is happening, and, like, basically smirking at Asuka being mentally contaminated. So... And there's, like, other stuff that's happening throughout here, so I, I just want to, like, introduce 
and this moment that Koru is far more heavily figured in the manga, uh, but I'll go into more of the like actual details when we get into it. But I, I think it's like worth noting because this is one of the, if you're reading the manga, I've talked previously about some of the smaller branches that I think occur just like in terms of how the manga is approaching the material and how it's approaching the way that the characters, like to what degree are the characters willing to talk to each other about what's going on in their lives. Uh, but this is the moment where like, the manga, I think, is very clearly signaling that things can happen differently now um, to such an extent that it, like, could possibly change the arc of the series overall. Um, so that's my that's my little manga minute. Um, that's that's great. Uh, <laughs> anyone have I, anything else they want to talk about in here first? Or uh, Well, now that you mentioned that, it's interesting to me. Uh, I mean, I've, I've read a lot about the show over the years and therefore cannot confirm or deny whether this information is true. But I think the show, they really wanted to have Kaoru in more than one episode and it just did not happen <laughs> for a lot of reasons uh, that I think the really the way the show kind of bottlenecks uh in the last stretch really accounts for why I think, but, uh, but it's, but yeah, Kaoru is great. Uh, I wish there were more of his show incarnation in the show. Cause I, uh, well, I haven't read the manga in a while. I need to revisit it. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'll have we, lots of thoughts when we get there. <laughs> uh, now we can talk about Asuka. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who's the um, who's my favorite character in the show? Uh, in college, I there was a there was an opinion I came around too late, but uh, I don't know. This is just a really rich and amazing episode. Uh, I yeah, I um, oh sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. I wasn't gonna say anything important. I was kind of reaching, so it's fine. <laughs> um. Yeah, I watching this for the second time now, I've been struck by like how much I identify is the wrong word, um, but how much I feel for Asuka um, and how much I, I do like her character. Um, I so yeah, in the interest of that, in one of our prior episodes, um, when we were talking about episode nine, uh, there's a point I wanted to make and I missed it. But I want to return really quick because it's A, relevant, and B, like, I want to do Asuka's character justice. So, like, in this show, especially in the early episodes, we get so much about, like, Shinji and the ways that he is, like, objectified and, like, by others and all of these, like, different ways that he is, um, experiences alienation and, you know all these different like like sources of alienation that kind of build up like how we understand him as a character and how we understand his experience. Um, and I actually think we get a lot of that with Asuka um, earlier and here. And in episode nine, um, this is the episode where like it starts with Kensuke doing that like voiceover and all of those like photos that he's taken of Asuka like voyeuristically um, I, I think like that episode is really important for, for understanding Asuka in the sense of like, she is someone who is also like objectified heavily, um, by the people around her. Um, and she's put on like 
a stage, um, even against like, and not of her own volition. Um, there's a scene where like, there are a lot of scenes with her at the school where people are like crowding around her and like observing her as if she's like a celebrity. There are a lot of parallels that are drawn with like Kensuke kind of acting as like this paparazzi, taking all these really invasive pictures of her, like spreading them around the school. And it just like, I think it creates this grounds for, for us to understand as a viewer, like, okay, like all this shit is happening to Asuka. And like, you know, it, it makes you ask, like, okay, how is she experiencing this? Um, and then, you know, shows you, like, how things play out from there. Last time we talked about her, like, stuff with her stink rate, which I don't, you know, I probably shouldn't reca- uh, recapitulate because Neve is just going to, like, go out of her mind if I do. Um, but I will say, like, my like so she obviously has like this generalized inferiority complex that is directed variously at shinji misato and rei and here we see like this kind of stuff with asuka starts coming to a head here she is a character that is like very um very anchored to her ego in a way that like some of the other characters um that distinguishes distinguishes her um, from some of the other, some of the other characters, and my reading of this draws on like Lacan and Kristeva, um, in the sense that like their theory on the ego is that it's like it's a psychic structure that imagines like that is contingent on you imagining yourself as a wholeness, even though that's not like necessarily like tr- the uh, truth or reality because um, we are internally like divided in many ways and are like our bodies are you know vulnerable and um, fractured and divided um, in all these ways as well um, but in the con and Christopher like the ego is kind of a necessary psychic structure um, to be a subject because you have to have some sense of yourself as a whole in order to you know advance to further stages of like subjected Um with that said, like having an ego that is too strong isn't a good thing. It leads to like a kind of neurosis where you're obsessed with, you know, um, not being vulnerable, where you're obsessed with like shoring up, so to speak, um, the borders of your selfhood. So you're, you know, you're not emotionally vulnerable and then you're not um, like physically vulnerable in certain ways, which plays into like why she, she has trouble with the, the sinking with the Ava. Um, Because she can't, um, you know, open herself up to connect. But this also leads to, like, um, in the process of doing this, like, you have to suppress uh, your knowledge that you aren't actually a whole. Um, So there's a paranoia, like, around, you know, openness. Um, There's just, like, an extreme paranoia that is related to the suppressed knowledge of your own um, permeability. And uh, we see, like, Asuka's, um, the child version of Asuka kind of getting on this path because of her trauma, um, asserting, like, I'll think for myself, I'll live on my own, like, I will be this strong, sturdy, um, like, you know, self-directed, resilient uh, person. But, of course, she's also haunted with this inferiority complex that's 
evolving into misanthropy at this point. And the, uh, of course, this leaves her vulnerable to like psychological breakdown, um, which happens here when the angel like forcibly enters her mind, um, breaking through this boundary uh, causes like, you know, this full blown crisis. And I do want to like, I'm just going to draw a line under this without further comment, but like, I think this is important for why it is Asuka and Shinji at the end of, at the end of End of Evangelion, um, why it kind of has to be Asuka and why that's significant. Um, so yeah, there you go. It's my read on Asuka. Yeah, so I, I think, I don't know if we had anything else we wanted to talk about. But you, you had some notes here, right, Brad? Uh, yeah, it was um, mostly just about Asuka. Uh, I mean, this entire episode is like, you just, you get the full front and back of uh, Asuka's whole traumatic situation, which is implied in the end of Magma Diver. Really the most frivolous episode to like imply <laughs> that one of your characters is deeply traumatized at the end of. Uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty much just like, sailing back and forth through like all the layers of the shit that she's gone through uh really i mean all three of the children are trauma babies but i feel the worst for oscar for some reason just like no nothing nothing good i think especially with me this can go like go to the other little bit i want to talk about with this episode which is Especially in the manga, like, I like from this point on in the manga, Asuka's basically like incapacitated in a hospital bed, and the manga's version of Ray like is able to claim so much more agency than I think for a lot of it the manga's version of Asuka is able to, and so I I definitely agree with like I feel the worst for Asuka because I like she just gets like some of the worst outcomes for a, a lot of the ending. <laughs> yeah. Um, other than like a little bit of what happens towards like the very, very end. Um, yeah. Yeah. Her, her moment in the movie the, is, is fucking glorious. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the other part I just wanted to like quick draw out because there's this elevator scene with Asuka and Ray. Mm-hmm. Um, and like one, like part of me, I was rewatching this and I actually tweeted on my locked Twitter of like, I am so furious that the elevator scene, which is like such an interesting and fascinating scene in like large swaths of the Ava fandom just became like the scene for people to debate who's best waifu or whatever. And it's just like, this is like not at all what the scene is about, which for me, the scene is like, here are these two girls who are feeling extremely dehumanized by like the situation they're in but they're also coming at it from like these very different experiences in this way where instead of being able to in any way, like connect with each other over their dehumanization and support each other, it just like turns into this like terrible them, like literally picking at the worst parts of each other or like finding their flaws. And Oscar in particular is like so desperate to do this because that's what her character is. Whereas like Ray is so much more pointed, I think. And especially this watch through, it just struck me how much that. So like Oscar is calling Ray a puppet or like a doll. There's the whole thing that's going on with the doll with Oscar and her mother. 
And that, in fact, like the doll that her mother is playing with has visual parallels with the like child Ray that we see strangled by Dr. Akagi, Ritsuko's mother, previously. And so, like, all these stuff are coming together of like both of them are are feeling dehumanized around these ways that like have to deal with dolls or puppetry. And Asuka is specifically saying, like, you are just a puppet unit you know, two should be a puppet who just obeys me, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So clearly because of like how Asuka has been traumatized, but that it is also like jabbing at something that I think is something that Ray, I don't think Ray is a doll, but is also struggling with like, to what degree have I been created to be a doll, which, you know, Ray being associated with a doll is to such an extent that when we talked about the 08th MS team, in our previous series, I specifically referenced Ray when we were talking about a scene where um, Ina sp- says, I am not a doll. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, like this elevator scene is, it's honestly one of my favorite scenes in the entire series. Yeah, like, it's an amazing scene. And it's, it's funny because both of them are like ones where if you're being really, really cynical, you could be like, oh, this is just like they're running out of budget and they can't animate stuff so they're just gonna linger on something but like my two favorite scenes are i think the conversation between misato and kaji that's also a sex scene but throughout all of it we're just looking at the cigarettes and the beer on the table and the torn and then also this elevator i I noticed that recently that there's the torn (laughs) condom ripper in the foreground i was like holy shit that's always been there sorry (laughs) um yeah and like I don't know, like, this elevator scene is so fucking good, and again, I'm like, I'm furious that there are parts of the fandom that is like, oh, this is going into the debate of, like, best girl or, like, best waifu, and I'm like, all of that is, like, the worst part. It's, like, the part of me that hates Ava and made me so scared to return to Ava is that there are so many fans like that, so. uh. Uh, I am aggressively unaware of what people (laughs) who like this show think. Uh, so, uh, uh, and as long as I live, I, I will, I will keep up. I feel like Ghost Divers fans probably do not have opinions about best waifus. Oh, God, uh, Ghost Divers fans are probably going into us watching Evangelion being like, I don't know if I want to rewatch this, but I trust them. <laughs> yeah. That's, oh, that's great. Good, good perspective to go into it. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't, yeah, I don't fuck with. I mean, I don't fuck with large portions of anime fandom for obvious reasons. Yeah, um, a good reason. <laughs> I wanted to mention uh, the Oscar race, like the elevator scene. This is just a really dumb thing, but it like haunted me every time I watched uh, Death. It's like slightly reanimated for the director's cut. Uh, the original televised version, it's just a single frame. Like nothing it's all static uh yeah the director's cut oscar sneezes right before ray starts talking and it's like (laughs) every time i'm like oh yeah that's right that happens (laughs) uh but it's but i kind of like both i also wanted to say that like anytime there's a scene in the show where it's like did they run out of budget it's the best scene in the show (laughs) it's like yeah the scene Neve, you didn't mention this one but uh another scene that you know is obviously um very similar is the scene of Kaoru's death where there's just like 
at least 30 seconds of um, that static frame of yeah. like the Ava holding quarter. What, um, what I like about I, this... Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, which I think is like probably one of the like greatest scenes in like anime history. Um, but yeah, go ahead. I, I agree. I, what I like about this one is that it's silent though. Uh, just elevator sounds. I think somebody, yeah. I need to look this up and see if it already exists. Somebody should upload like a 24 hour uh, YouTube loop <laughs> of the elevator <laughs> scene before they start talking because that would like really make my day. <laughs> I think on the Ghost Divers Twitter account, I uh, retweeted. So th- there's a meme that's at least happening on Twitter around Evangelion um, where it's just scenes from Evangelion, but then at the end, one of the characters has drip. And I, I think the <laughs> elevator scene is one that had that treatment done to. Oh my God. Um, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, that's great. Uh, I also. While you were talking about that scene, uh, Nia, I was thinking about something Connor said about Asuka being the embodiment of the ego, because I I think that that's really interesting because Ray is kind of, uh, feel free to disagree with me about this because, uh, I don't know, I could be wrong, Uh, but uh, Ray kind of feels almost egoless to me. Like, in, in her entire imp- approach to everything. Uh, why she pilots the Ava, etc. It's never about the self. Whereas, uh, whereas Asuka is constantly reinforcing and stuffing up this projection of self that she's, like, puffed out uh, as a defense mechanism for the entire world. Natural response when your mom wants you to commit suicide with her when you're just like a kid. Um, and then she does it and you are left behind. Uh, and don't really have a relationship with your dad that we can ever really parse. Like there's not a lot of information there. He obviously is not at some point just disappears. Yeah. He's not obviously not. Yeah. He does not figure into her life whatsoever. So she basically just has this huge, very primal trauma like uh that she is constantly trying to compartmentalize and stuff down as deeply as she possibly can so that it cannot escape and her entire life is set up in this way (laughs) and it's it's really rough uh because when she loses that buffer that she has between herself and the rest of the world there's nothing left there's nothing else, just like total blackness of uh, mental illness. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's just like a, a, yeah, just a total pers- oil spill of 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 that beneath it, and she she just like gets stuck in the muck of it. One of the director's cut scenes uh, is really great. Like most of the director's cut stuff for this episode, I think, is mostly just extensions of Oscar's like deep psychological uh hallucinations slash actual things that are happening when the angel's exploring her brain where she's like wandering through like these faceless crowds that like slowly like suck her into their like gray maw it's like really vivid uh all of the stuff that the show is very good at which is like visualizing this kind of mental breakdown 
and just absolutely just brought, brought to the forefront. Like this is a, there are many episodes in Evangelion starting with episode 16, I think where it's like, Oh yeah, we're not fucking around, but this is like really like, this is the last, I think of the, we're not fucking around episodes. You know, the hallelujah chorus is playing. <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, depending on what translation you're reading, she's probably, she might say they're, they're raping my mind. Uh, it's a clear violation of a boundary without uh, any form of consent. So absolutely fair, you know, real, yeah, real tough stuff. And it's also just like happening at the worst possible time <laughs> for, for, for uh, this particular character. And also yeah. feels ex- incredibly orchestrated as well. Every time I watch uh, Evangelion, I'm like, wow, Gendo sucks. <laughs> yeah. Like, but it just gets, gets more and more like like obviously they yeah so or like maybe not even gendo i don't know like that somebody i feel like had to know that asuka had to be taken out at a certain period of time so the kaoru could slide in uh at least that's kind of the framing that the show implies at one point anyway yeah i think uh, i think they say at some point i can't remember who or when but there's something about like Oh yeah, we have a replacement on the way anyway. Yeah, Misato's so, like it's that's a little convenient. Just saying, and I and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're right. That really is like I think somebody must have actually known what was going down and did that did, had that all go down on purpose. Which, of course, it's base. The show is about adults traumatizing children. Uh, yeah, I think this is also something where the the manga makes it even more explicit because they have Asuka's literal replacement like standing there in the control room watching this happen. Wow. Who we like in the manga also have immediately set up of like, oh, Sele is like, oh yeah, are you ready? It's like almost time. Like head over to Nerve now. <laughs> um, yeah. What what I will say about um, just to address like your point about Ray. Um, I think, so the the show, it spends like a great deal of, it takes a great deal of time and care to like flesh out the, you know, the subjecthood of, I I think pretty much all of the main characters, but especially like the three children and distinguishing them. And what I'll say about Ray is like, so much of what's going on there. I think it has to do with like, I mean, the war stuff that we know about Ray, like her actual origin um, and how that's different from like, you know, like she's not entirely human. Right. Um, and she was like created somehow um, for like this purpose. I'm echoing a lot of what you said earlier and her like, I think so much of it is, the process of her like forming or, or grappling with like a subjecthood that like is arising out of out of that and is like necessarily different and like unique. Um, so I don't think like I don't disagree. Um, I think that's part of like the place of like Ray's sense of self and her se- sense of self as like like as like a whole. Um, this kind of like, you know, um, this ego is like so deeply tied into 
all these other aspects about her being and complicated in those ways. And I don't know if it if it's that it's completely absent, but it is like there there's definitely yeah, like it's it's definitely different. Um yeah. in, in a way that like, you know, the um yeah, it's it's definitely different. And we can probably flesh that out later. No, yeah, but yeah. I mean, no, do we want to just talk about episode 23 now? Because yeah, I feel this, like I, this is a nice really transition. Get into there. Yeah. Um, all right. Episode 23. We start with various scenes of, uh, or scenes of various characters being depressed. Uh, Misato is uh, crying, replaying Kaji's answering machine message. Um, Asuka is like, has escaped into video games and then crying at night at Hikari's house. She's basically just playing video games all day. I mean, been there. I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even Ritsuko on the phone, like, she's talking to her grandma and she's feeling sad about the death of her. her. It's I think it's her cat, but yeah. she's, like, sent it to live with her grandma. Um, I think at a certain point when you send your cat to live with someone else, it becomes that person's cat. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, she's sad about her cat dying. Um, it's clearly not entirely about the cat, but you know, that's, that's what Ritsuko thinks it's about. Um, been there as well. (laughs) Um, and then, you know, at perfect timing, another angel attacks, (laughs) um, Ray is sent out in unit zero, but the angel succeeds in invading unit zero and begins to contaminate it. Um, just a comment about the angel. So this makes sense in case you're not watching. Uh, the angel is like it starts out as like a ring, but eventually forms into like a kind of worm. Um, yeah, it, I, it acts like this a, is one of my favorite designs, um, Armasail, just because of like when you first see it, it looks like a halo, but it's also kind of like a wheel of fire, which has like the more clear biblical angel references. Um, but then as they like when you zoom in, and it's like less just the light blinding you, it also re- resembles this DNA strand. Um, and then also like once it is invading unit one and there's like weird body mass coming out of the back of or uh, unit zero and there's like weird body mass coming out, it's like taking on the form of previous angels as well as Ray. Um, and so it's just like this like very bizarre, like I like it because of how much it's like easily connecting um, like seamlessly in its design, these like references to the angelic stuff that's been occurring with angels, as well as this like DNA weird connections and like the way that the angels are similar to the humans and things like that. So it it's like I think one of the most evocative designs. Um, even though when you first look at it, you're just like, oh, it's a light ring. <laughs> yeah the the ray the the little tiny rays that grow out of it those only appear in the director's cut. Um, this is the most crucial director's cut episode for me because the fight just makes a ton more sense and also sets up a lot of imagery in End of Evangelion. So like, if you got to watch one, this is the episode you, you pick the director's cut off. So, uh, I probably should have done that. It's okay. (laughs) Like, uh, I mean the, the televised episode is fine, but it's just like, you get visualizations that they did not animate initially. We'll get into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So this, it turns into the serpent form or more, or like a worm, like a parasitic worm um, and begins to um, uh, penetrate unit zero and begins to like contaminate it. Um, they send out unit two as backup 
but um, Oscar is completely unable to pilot it. Um, her sync rate is just so low, she can't make it move. Um, so they pull her back in, and you're kind of wringing their hands over sending Shinji out in Unit 1, uh, and then ultimately decide they have to. The angel taking on Ray's visage like attempts to invade Unit 1 as well, as it's still absorbing Unit 0. Um, yeah, this is this is harrowing in the manga because it's like Shinji's like having to stab Ray over and over again with a knife. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we can talk about that when we get into our read of this episode. Um, but Ray uh, sacrifices herself by pulling the angel into um, Unit Zero um, and her and self-destructing. Uh, Shinji is depressed. Understandably, after Ray's death, and Misato tries and fails to comfort him, uh, but then they get this miraculous news that Ray is alive. Sidebar: We see Ray's charred corpse earlier in the episode, so we kind of know something is up here. Um, we go to the hospital. Ray is uh, covered in bandages, as per usual, and uh, Shinji is like, "Oh, I'm so glad you're you're alive," and uh, she doesn't remember saving him. And remarks that she must be the third one um, because she has no memory of all that has taken place. Sele is uh, incensed about uh, these events and they want to interrogate Rei, but Gendo sends Ritsuko instead. Um, Misato finally starts to take action in the wake of Kaji's death, so she finally looks into this microchip and the pill that he gave her, which has, you know, uh, some really great MP3 files on it. Um, meanwhile, this mixtape. Go to my SoundCloud. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, it has some Sonic Youth songs on it. Um, meanwhile, Shinji gets a call from Ritsuko. Um, they all end up converging. Uh, Misato, Shinji, and Ritsuko all end up converging in the basement of Nerve, where Ritsuko reveals the graveyard of failed AV units and ultimately the lab where Ray was born in the tank full of empty bodies. Um, that they can pour that they can pour Ray's soul into if she dies, and uh, Ritsuko destroys all of the all of the bodies in uh, kind of rage and spite against Gendo. So, so yeah, yeah, just a cheery episode. <laughs> <laughs> Noth- nothing, nothing but laughs. Uh, this whole um, show, really. So yeah, I I mean I talked a little bit about the manga. Um, uh, I don't know when we want me to fully get into some of my manga shit here, but um, just in terms of like how the synopsis differs a little bit. So the fight is in general more extended in part because Koru is piloting unit two now. Uh, so, you know, Asuka, as I mentioned before, is basically non-responsive in the hospital. Um, and so we get like multiple scenes of Koru, like getting a weird chainsaw weapon and like trying to attack the angel with that and everything. Um, having this like internal thing of, oh, I could actually just like deploy my AT field and end this, but I feel like I would be like tipping my hand too early. And so I'm, I'm like actually choosing not to, to uh, save this situation, which also means that like Koru could choose to at this moment already start deviating the the story more from what's going to happen, but instead doesn't. And like what happens instead is basically what happens in the manga. Although again, far more har- harrowing the the angels like literally 
having a ray going and being like don't you want to become one with me to shinji and shinji's like having to stab her repeatedly with a vibro knife um it's honestly some pretty terrible panels but uh yeah that's that's the the main difference here <laughs> um that's rough I, I i definitely read that and i don't remember it at all uh, or maybe i i i can't say when i lost track of the manga it just the releases were too far apart from each other for me to maintain interest. Yeah. Oh, something a new a new uh, a new project. Maybe next time I rewatch it, I'll uh, I'll read the manga alongside it. So yeah, I know. I I have a whole like thing about this episode, so I'm just gonna sit back and you know. If if you if there's anything you want to talk about here, just go for it. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you go first, Brad, and I will get into some manga shit later. I mean, what unless is there... you have nothing. Uh, what is there to say? This is I have. This is probably my least favorite episode of the last run. I think that there are complicated reasons for that. It's. Uh, it's because I love Ritsuko. Ritsuko is obviously a, a bi queen or something, <laughs> but uh, but uh, I she is not served well by the show, and her uh, conflict is hard for me to really feel. So her killing every single ray uh, is just. I mean, it's an emotionally necessary moment uh, in the, you know, dramatic continuum of the show. But it doesn't hit me as hard as a lot of the other emotional beats that it, that surround it. Also, I feel like Ray's sacrifice is really amazing, but it also feels like a really short part of the episode. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, maybe because this episode has like a lot stuffed into it. Uh, even though it also feels kind of spacious and in other parts, it's hard. So, like, I guess that's me trying to explain why I don't actually have much to say about it, even though I wish I did, because Ray is my favorite of the three children now in my life, uh, probably for a lot of obvious reasons, um, but I don't. Beyond the beyond Ray's interaction with the angel and her self-sacrifice and also her like kind of revelation about her feelings for Shinji, uh, which are thankfully super ambiguous in the show. <laughs> um, uh, I don't have a lot to say about it. <laughs> like it's yeah, uh, I... the, the, the angel dialogue is extremely awesome. Uh, but, but basically anytime Ray is talking to herself or is talking to a facsimile of herself in the show, the show is operating, like singing the music of the spheres to me. Like that is the show. Like that's the show that I fell in love with, but, but rest of this episode, yeah, I can... some bad stuff happens. Um, uh, the Misato talking to Shinji scene is great. Or like she approaches Shinji and holds his hand, and then he's like, don't do that. Which is honestly 
Um, Shinji is doing the right thing. <laughs> but, but, yeah. uh, and, and Misato is doing the wrong thing. And I think that she realizes that, but it's like weird. <laughs> but, uh, but it's an inversion of Shinji being unable to comfort her when she's crying about Kaji's dying. And I find uh, maybe this is another reason I don't have much to say about this, the show. Misato and Shinji is a relationship so complex that I don't know how to describe it. Not even like how to like characterize it or to tell you how I feel about it. <laughs> it's, it is so oof. <laughs> uh, it's a real mess. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I really, I hope you listen to our, the episodes that we've already recorded because we spend a lot of time, um, I mean, attempting I, to characterize this relationship. I think I, I think I literally say the words of like I identify very strongly with Misato, and also to some degree, like the feelings of like, am I a bad mom or struggling with that? And yet, I also think I'm a much better mom than Misato because I know not to hit on the child. Yeah, no, it's a really important distinction. So, yeah, um, like that's a. A thing to do if you're an adult and you're like in a parental position is don't hit on the child. Well, uh, this is like I, a really simple, basic thing. I feel like this is like, I mean, like Misato's, this is probably stuff that y'all have covered, but Misato's stuff is like real, real great, um, which is, I don't think she really knows how to relate to people except through uh, sex. So. Uh, yeah. At least to like deeply to people that she cares about, which is probably like the reason of the the like that she and Ritsuko aren't like living on a farm being lesbians with each other because uh, uh well I mean Ritsuko's got her own shit but but uh but Misato's clearly also trapped in heterosexuality God damn it um, so yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah it's yeah. <laughs> uh end of evangelion just makes it even worse uh but it's it's rough um you know god bless her hope she hope she figured things out um by the end of the rebuild movies or something <laughs> so. yeah um i i do like so some like grounding here one with to like stay here on misato and shinji one thing that i also thought about with the scene because chronologically when we are recording this the most recent episode of hot singles that came out was the one that i guested on and i talked about the album flowers by sinfang and that my favorite song on that is probably the final track which is weird heart and the lyrics of weird heart are literally just sinjury listing out like if you're going to be with me here are all the things that i need from you like if i am in these situations this is what you need to do to take care of me and for an album that is so much about like the weird desires and dreams and like expectations that you put on other people when you are trying to figure yourself out and trying to figure out like the relationships you have with each other, um, I think it's very poignant for that album to then end with like, let me just list out, here's what I actually need from someone if I'm like in this moment of struggling. And one of the things that it, whenever I listen to it, I think of, and a thing that I like had to learn as I got older and, and got better at being in relationships with people is that often the way that people will intuitively try to take care of someone else when they see that someone else is suffering is often 
they will immediately respond with what they want if they were in a similar situation. And that part of like learning how to be in a healthy relationship with someone is actually recognizing like what the other person needs, even though it is not necessarily what you would need in that situation and how to give it to them. And I think that's like playing out so clearly with Misato and Shinji, where what Shinji needs is distance and needs like space to be sad and to be alone. I think it, and like to then hopefully reconnect with people. But I think like so often we see Shinji wanting to take space for like, let me just be alone for a moment. And so that's what he tries to give to Misato when Misato is crying over Shinji's death. And then what Misato needs, like, this is the thing that I specifically say of, like, I I relate so heavily to Misato when she's going into the self-hate spiral when they're walking home from the wedding. And what she really needs is just Kaji to fucking kiss her. And, like, yeah. that will, like, stop her self-hate spiral. And so that's what she needs. And so what she offers to Shinji in this moment is, like, oh, like, you need touch. And the show's more ambiguous with it of like touching the hand, like I'm here for you. Um, whereas I think the movie, it's one of the things that I, I don't like as much about end of Evangelion, but I, I think is also playing out there is like that. Like you say, this is one of the reasons why I like am ashamed. I'm not, I'm, I'm unabashed about this, <laughs> um, but like to admit that I relate so much to Misato is the fact that like what I need is this like physicality in a way that like I, de- I very deeply connect with Misato. And I think one of the, the major differences between me and Misato is that I recognize that like, that is often not what other people need though. <laughs> yeah. That's what I need, but it's not what other people need. And I need to like, not default to offering that to other people because otherwise it gets into some really bad spaces yeah. so look forward to end of evangelion it's uh, <laughs> um it's great any any other thoughts on here or i'm i want to talk a little bit about ray because i think ray figures heavily here and like my my read on her and i could also get into some manga shit but yeah that sounds good uh i think i will all I've, I've said all i really have to say yeah um, um the only thing i'll add is just like it i think neve you've really gotten like to to the heart of like some of the tension here the only thing that i would add is like in the perspective of ava so so i think ava is like we've talked at length about this in general and how it's envisioning human relationships but also like how that relates to misato and shinji how like because you're divided, because you're literally like two separate beings, it is to a certain degree it's impossible to like to perfectly know what like somebody else needs. And of course you can have like experience and you know that they can tell you and you can learn over time and you can there's some level of like intuition that can happen. But even in that there's you know there are still these gaps that like are occasioned by like fear and like self-doubt and i think like you know to get to the point of like oh i need this from you first it requires like the other individual in this case being like in in this relationship either being like misato or shinji even within themselves getting to a point of like I'm not too afraid to like try and comfort this person 
Um, I'm not too afraid to like make this attempt, even though I don't know what I'm doing. But then also like, you know, even in the best occasion, like when someone can tell you what they need, that like, to some extent presupposes like, that a person is going to be able to like, even know exactly what they need or articulate that in a way that like, I don't think Ava, I certainly don't think Ava is saying that's impossible. Um, but I think all of those things are like, they're not taken for granted. Um, they're all like, because of the division, like within ourselves and the division between like ourselves, all of these things are like processes with like gaps and all of these things are struggles that we have to like deal with and the like struggle and the suffering and all those things like you know is part so much a part of what the show is like trying to say is you know definitive of being human and being human in relation to others so yeah i think long way of saying i think like your point um cuts at the heart of like the way Ava is trying to depict, like, you know, the possibility of this kind of relationship or how it comes into being. Yeah. So, um, Ray is the, the other big thing here to maybe talk about. And this is something I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, but I'll repeat it here for, for your sake as well, Brad. Um, that in rewatching Evangelion, I am identifying the most with Misato for like who I am currently and also seeing in Ray who I think I was in high school when I was rewatching this, even though at the time I was like seeing myself in Shinji. But I think some of that was like an unwillingness for me as a closeted trans woman to look at Ray and say like, this is the person that I, I am most like um, because that would like, admit some sort of identifying with a female character in a way that was like scary to admit at the time. And that it wasn't until like I started jokingly identifying with Chie in persona four that like, I started actually doing that and, and making those like starting to be able to, to conceive of how I'm relating to media in that way. Um, but especially in retrospect, I look at Ray as someone who is struggling like very deeply with, I think, kinds of fake womenhood in ways that like have a, this certain trans resonance. Um, there is this like, there's the, this way that like Ray is constantly on one hand, we've talked about her in relation to Asuka as like Asuka being the Misora Hibari who is impersonating Misato and is like impersonating this like bad woman um, in some ways. And is like, to reduce it to like a, a more Western concept is the like whore to the Madonna. Whereas like Ray is in many ways embodying this like idealized Japanese girl, the that like embodies some sort of like purity or chasteness and is like gesturing towards domesticity and motherhood. And I think so much of, especially at this point, what we're seeing with Ray is like how both of those constructions of feminine identity for young girls are like not true and are, are harmful. Um, and Ray is like trying to embody this ideal Japanese girl 
in this way where she is constantly balking against it in the ways that like she feels fake or or not um genuine or is like is struggling with like what does it mean within the actual lore of the show that like I am a, a literal created being who has like some sort of created soul. I'm like partially cloned from Yui, I guess, but also like Yui's soul is in unit one. So like, it's not Ray, like what's going on with Ray's soul. And there's just like all this like strange complexity that that's going on with like, who, who am I and how am I actually like occupying the space? And it, in a way that I think is gendered, in that way that like was scary for me when I first watched the show to like admit the degree to which I was identifying with her. And so as all like closeted trans women, I sublimated my identification with this girl into having a crush on her. Um, (laughs) And so that was what, that was my high school self was uh, you, Brad, sending me a cat girl Ray figure because I had a crush on her. So, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which again, I still own because weird sentimentality of you sending it to me <laughs> i mean it's great i i yeah <laughs> so basically same story really <laughs> uh is uh i don't know my first encounter with ray in the show i was mesmerized but i was like you know growing up totally indoctrinated into heterosexual uh, bullshit society <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, I remember thinking actually really distinctly that I wanted her haircut uh, which I don't think I've done yet you know you need I need to, you need a little bit more confidence to rock those bangs I think I got in the, with that yeah. shag so I like I, th- I think I can get there uh, but <laughs> But also, I think I, so too. I think yeah. So. But uh, yeah. but I but like that's the thing is like that was the thought I had, and then it that got like sublimated into I like you know uh, I'm attracted to this uh, animation character. Yeah, <laughs> like, I am. Uh, I am going to on the shoujo i forum, which I'm totally just joining as a dude who's just into lesbian stuff. I'm going to have my avatar be Ray, not because I identify with her, but just because I like that character. Yeah. Um, that my was avatar me. was Ray in a lot of forum. <laughs> Ray and Lane. I really yeah. should have paid attention to these <laughs> things, uh, and I also should have watched uh, Utena at a much younger age. But that's okay. I saw. It yeah, last we year. will. We will watch that um, on the podcast soon. And... I'm, I'm so happy for you all. If you want me as a guest <laughs> again, I will talk about Utena for as long as I can talk about Evangelion. So, um, yeah, uh, I feel like that's the one that I've gotten the most people saying that they want to guest on, but I think a lot of them only want to do an episode. So we might just have like a rotating cavalcade of guests. We'll see. I, I love um, that idea. Sorry <laughs> to bring up Utena. It's all I can think about for the rest of my life. It's like. I mean, it's let's talk about how great it is some more because connor is specifically waiting to watch it until we get to it for the podcast (laughs) i'm so So happy it's fantastic (laughs) i'm so i'm so in in anticipation of watching i'm so happy for you connor i i watched it for the first time last year like in june uh and i wish i could watch it for the first time again Um, i i did not finish it when i watched it but i did watch it in high school because um Emily actually owns some of the DVDs, but not all of them. So, um, 
Although it, it's interesting, it's like a thing that I'll probably talk about when we actually get to it, but the the ways that it was marketed in the West to like very heavily efface a lot of the queerness in it. Yeah. Um in a way where a lot of people like totally just thought like the main characters were straight because that's how heavily it was marketed as like, oh, here's the hot boys that the girls are dating, which is not what that show is at all. <laughs> and so yeah. Um, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I generally the this is I mean this is something we can bring back around to Ava. People's like heterosexual romantic projections on shows are all all are like mostly all bullshit to me. <laughs> like uh I there's there's like notes in one of the episodes about Shinji and Rei as like a projected pairing as a ship. And all I got to say about that is that nobody in Evangelion, as they exist in the show, or even in the movies, should be dating anyone. <laughs> like, ever. <laughs> so, yeah, this is. Uh, I don't want to see them. I don't want to see any of them fuck each other. Maybe Misato and Ritsuko in a universe where they have less mental illness. But, like, otherwise, no. <laughs> like, fuck it. Um, <laughs> like, I, I want them to. I want. I'm okay with them starting to fuck each other while they still have lots of mental illness. That's yeah, because that's I, fine. I still think if they do, they're just going to like they're going to get to a healthier place eventually if they just <laughs> like start fucking each other and just admit it. So um, this is great. This is the utopian version of the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> again, it, my version where I rewrite until it. we figure it out. <laughs> um, it's one way so, of becoming one, you know, like, I guess human instrumentality is just like the ultimate orgy, really, if we think about it. Yeah. Not very um, hard at all. Sorry. <laughs> somewhat related here. <laughs> um, specifically on the, like, projection of Rei and Shinji. This is one thing that has always been a tension for me with the manga, because in many ways I do like the manga, but also it sets up a relationship between them to an extent where... Like, I think it does try to complicate it, but it it is also more explicit. And it is stuff where, like, I think the scene that, that works the most for me is there's a scene in the manga where Shinji goes to see Rei's apartment again. Um, and Rei is like, I should, it's like in this way that is like very intentionally in contrast to the first encounter where Rei is just like completely indifferent to his presence, um, is like, oh, I have a guest. I should make tea. That's like what you do when you have a guest, right? Um, I've literally never made tea before. How many tea leaves do I even put into this like pot? <laughs> um, and then burns herself trying to make the tea. Oh my God. And then Shinji holds her hand under the water being like, oh, you, you should like do this. Otherwise it's going to oh. get worse. Oh, um, yeah. And the, this scene in and of itself has this like, tenderness and closeness that works for me to some degree and where it becomes worse is where there's a scene later on where Ray and Shinji talk in a garden and Ray goes through like here's all the feelings I had all the different times that you've touched me and some of it is like somewhat interesting like it's one of these reasons where I say I have like so much tension around it because my reading of Ray as a trans character like this like trans resonance thing so much of that is like, oh, this is working really well for me. And yet also the ways that it's then tying into like them setting up a clearer, like 
ship between Rey and Shinji just doesn't work because like I I don't think it should work. <laughs> um the part where it's still kind of like I, I give it a pass for the manga is the fact that they then all of this happens before it gets to here, let me show you all of the empty vessel ray bodies that we pour our soul into, blah, blah, blah. Like, she's connected to Yui. It's like a clone of your mother or whatever. Um, <laughs> and when that happens, like, Shinji's whole relationship to her changes and gets where he's like, all of this time, I've been, like, starting to try to connect to other people in my life. And now, like, literally this one person that I was like, maybe I can have a genuine relationship with this person. I'm now like, no, wait, stuff is, like, fucking weird and broken in- now, and I, like, can no longer connect with you, Ray. And so the fact that they they bring that in to complicate it, like, allows me to give a little bit more pass for the ways that they are, like, setting up some sort of shit between the two. Um, but yeah, it's... I, like, I continue to to fixate on this part of the manga because on one hand, I love how much more they develop Rei as a character, and I think they, like, they do interesting justice to her as a character, but also I have, like, weird feelings about how it then affects Shinji and Shinji's relationship with her, as well as Korra, which we'll get into shortly. Um, I can just skip the stuff with Rei and Gendo. Let, should we just move on to episode 24? I, um, so- I... I- <laughs> I sorry, I don't know if do, do did you all already cover the Ray and Gendo stuff in like previous episodes because I did oh, yeah. want to talk about it a yeah. little. Yeah, but you you like feel free to address I just, it. Um, my it's just something I have a long comment about. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I have a long comment that is going to touch on that as well. So go right ahead. Uh, it's just a you know I've been thinking about it a lot this rewatch. I think about it every time, really when I figured it out, um, is the, is that Ray and Gendo's whole thing is never told directly. It's all implication. It's like her entire, like adolescence and even childhood are completely blank. You know, we know as much as the records, uh, and maybe just like a little bit more since we also see that she was murdered by uh, Ritsuko's mom. But the like the more you watch it, the more it is utterly undeniable that Gendo has been grooming her and sexually abusing her for her whole life. Uh, it's the primary relationship she has. And it defines her relationship with others in the way that she really doesn't have relationships with others at the start of the show. It is, he is, like, Gendo is it. The thing, I guess I do have more to say about this episode than I thought. All right. Um, What I do love about this, about Ray 3, and, like, is, is... Ray three. I mean, it's weird that you have to die and come back to have this moment. Um, I guess, but, uh, but it's like this slight shift in perspective, uh, which I guess is also, which is maybe even less related to her dying and, and being installed in a new clone as a soul that doesn't necessarily re- remember the specifics of her death, but the, there's a, like a trail of feelings <laughs> that, seem to travel from vessel to vessel. And it's with this like 
slight shift, like her realizing the profoundness of how she feels for Shinji that makes her realize exactly how horrible Gendo is. Uh, and makes her realize exactly how she how trapped she is. Whereas before she didn't really have a situation to, or a relationship to compare it to. And I think that that's like one of the most breathtaking things that the show does. Um, <laughs> even though almost none of it happens on the surface. It's all an echo from somewhere else. Yeah, I think... I think the manga touches on this a little bit more directly. Um, there's a part that I was rereading it this time. And again, like I'm, I'm currently for various reasons, including rewatching Evangelion, thinking a lot about when I was a very depressed teenager. Um, and it just like hit me and resonated with me very deeply of, she specifically talks about how for so long she wanted death. Like they, you know, there were these endless vessels. She knew even if she died, she would be brought back. And it was specifically because Gendo would not let her die because she was useful to him. And she starts hitting this point where she realizes. And the, what I think is still interesting about the manga is they don't like, if you're reading it, you're like, well, Gendo like clearly still sees use in you. But I think what she is realizing is that she is coming to a point of like, wanting to break free from this like controlling grooming relationship that she has with Gendo and that in doing so will no longer be useful to him. And thus in doing so will like no longer have her life preserved. And yet in breaking from her or in breaking from Gendo, that is where she actually wants to be able to live and have a life and like not no longer just be this like incredibly suicidal, depressed teen um, that just, rereading the manga this time really, really hit me because the person that I dated before Emily was abusive to me as well. Um, and I was like deeply suicidal at the time. And so this whole, like this struggle of like when you are in the deepest moments of suicide being like unable to actually access it. And then Often it is like this moment of coming out of suicidal depression. Like that is often when people are most likely to act on it because there's like this weird, like you are getting the actual energy to do things. And yet you're still in this point where you're like trying to figure out how do I even live? Um, even though at this point you're now maybe in, to some degree starting to actually desire that. So um, like, I think again, the manga handles some of the stuff around Ray in a way that's really interesting and connects with me very deeply. Um, and that I think is like pulling out stuff that was in the show, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I will like, I know you have thoughts, Connor. I'll throw it over to you. <laughs> yeah. I'm like chomping at the bit here to um, make this comment because both of you have. Um, yeah. Talk art- about subjected. <laughs> yeah. Both of you have articulated like so much of so much stuff that is like, amazing context for this um so my my main thing with this episode is i have a a reading on i think the sacrifice scene is incredibly significant for the whole arc of the series and understanding like again in my reading um what the series is doing including end of evangelion i talked a little bit uh in the previous episode uh i i won't go through it all again but uh, Christopher has this idea 
uh, about has this concept of abjection, which she she articulates in uh, primarily in this uh, essay called uh, Powers of Horror as an essay on abjection, which I recommend checking out for anyone who's interested. Um, it's it's extremely complex, and I disavow any expertise. But basically, like abjection is a kind of feeling or psychic structure that has to that is related to things that disturb uh, subject object boundaries, specifically like as experienced by like a a subject. Um, so one of the things that she brings up is like bodily fluids. Um, and corpses and stuff like that. Um, so here, like, I'll just put that here as like, this is, um, we talked about it with the the angel, I can't remember the name, but the angel that's basically just like that white fluid that, um, you know, invades Toji's uh, Ava and um, then like kind of invades Ray's. Um, but here, like, again, we get this, um, this scene of abjection, this escalating threat, where like not only is the Ava being um, invaded, but literally like Ray's actual body um, is being invaded and corrupted, and like turned into you know some different kind of matter, clearly like you know collapsing, disturbing these boundaries between Ray, the Ava, and the Angel, this kind of alien entity. Um, we then get this other scene inside of Ray's mind where. Um, we get this temptation, which we've seen previously, was offered to Shinji. The idea of like, well, don't you want to become one with somebody else? Um, isn't it so horrible and painful to be alone and to be like divided from others? And wouldn't it be great if you could become one with, you know, th- this recurring motif of like, become one with me, become one with me. Last time I discussed this as a um, something that like in my reading is a um a false comfort because it involves like relinquishing subjecthood um, which requires division and which requires boundaries in favor of you know um a type of unity that uh would would obliterate subjecthood uh, in a way that is um not ideal so we get this all like happening here and ray uh as Ray is like in this dialogue with the angel, um, she realizes that the angel is is tempting her into you know into this outcome. But since that like temptation requires erasing the border between individuals, it means that like it's not just a choice that affects you; um, it's a choice that affects somebody else as well. Um, in this case, it's Shinji. So by making this choice, like she would not only be relinquishing her own subjecthood, but she'd be obliterating Shinji's. Um, she uh, makes a comment of like, at once the angel has like fused with her. I think this, from what you said about the director's cut, this seems like it's even clearer in the director's cut. Um, but it's fused with her to the extent that it's like acting on her desire or like tapping into her desire. Um, she starts attacking, the angel starts attacking unit one, and she's like, this is my heart wanting to be one with Shinji. And like, clearly there's some part of Rei that wants this, but in spite of that, like in spite of the coercion of the angel and in spite of her own, like, this on some level a desire for this, 
Um, she still refuses it. Um, and I think this is actually a very important ethical choice um, because she is specifically choosing the pain of loneliness that like in this moment she's contemplating and acutely aware of. Um, she's choosing the pain of loneliness that comes with separation um, because she understands that like love, like the feeling, you know, I, I think she does love Shinji in like a non-romantic way. Um, but uh, love is only possible between like subjects as a, you know, in following from intersubjective recognition. Um, and there's like some sort of ethical necessity in acknowledging and respecting the subjecthood and otherness of other people, even if it entails suffering. So in this moment, she says, you know, she refuses to like give into this temptation to absorb Shinji, become one with Shinji, and like sacrifices herself in the process. And to tie it back into the observation you were making, Brad, um, this is pretty much the exact opposite <laughs> of what Gendo believes. Um, you know, knowing Gendo's master plan, which we'll discuss later, um, this is the opposite of his intention and the opposite of, like, his belief. And in this sense, like, this is an extremely important moment for Rei actually breaking from Gendo. And I think it's a, a, a turning point that helps us understand, like, some of the stuff you were pointing out later, where she's, like, picks up his glasses and is, like, about to crush them. And, you know, again, I'll just, like, gesture towards all the stuff that you said, because I think you brought it out very well. But yeah, I think, like, this moment is really significant for Ray, um, and then also, like, significant for End of Evangelion as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, this episode starts with, like, we get a little bit more of Asuka recalling her mother's suicide. Um, we see that she's in this bathtub in a derelict building, and some agents come and find her. Um, it's kind of suggested in the dialogue that it's convenient how long it took them to find her because her replacement is on the way, uh, who is Koru, who I've continued to refer to obliquely throughout this because I think it's very important to this series, despite only appearing in one episode mm -hmm. and for like not even that many minutes of the episode. Um, including like a full minute that's just him about to get squished. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so this is Koru, the fifth child. Um, Shinji encounters Koru standing on a statue um, of what seems to be some sort of one-winged angel or maybe like a weird swan. It's definitely evoking angels. Um, this show really not hiding very well what's going on with Koru. Um, and it's on this just like weird beach like i i have a note here that i'm just gonna bring up right now because i don't know how many real thoughts i have but like space feels really disjointed in this episode like there's no we see asuka in this bathtub and we're just like where the hell is this and then just an agent shows up and then shinji's at this beach that like we've never seen before with just weird rocks in it and then core is just there um and like it just it jumps through spaces in this way that feels very disconnected and who knows maybe some of that is budget and rushing and maybe some of that is i think already the show is pointing towards like the way that space is going to further deconstruct in 25 and 26 um 
Uh, anyway, I, I had a I had a sm- small reply to that. If it doesn't interrupt the synopsis too much, <laughs> go go ahead. Uh, we are not I, known for our tight synopses, so I just I just <laughs> I just don't think I ever really noticed this before. Uh, God knows, uh, probably because every time for for most of the times I've watched Ava, I've watched it straight through, like the whole thing in one go. Um, <laughs> Uh, done that way too many times to count and by the time you get to the end of it you're sort of delirious so you don't pay attention to yeah. anything that's really happening but i only noticed for the first time that they keep talking about how tokyo 3 is disappearing apparently the the angel attacks just got so freaking intense that they destroyed om- all of it pretty much is the implication so that's the reason why there are like all these new lakes and all these like yeah. half destroyed <laughs> things that are everywhere, uh, I think. Like, that would be the way that I would account for it, like, how how much the geography has become completely distorted. Yeah. But also in this way where... Like, the show seems increasingly disinterested in talking about anything that's beyond, like, the psychology of the characters, which, I mean, that's, like, literally what 25 and 26 is. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so at this point... Nerve is like at Nerve, Core is doing the sync test. It's revealed they're like just doing a dry run, and even without switching out the core, which at this point we know is like probably Asuka's mom or something, um, it Koro can just like sync with it fine, which is an anomaly. And we then get this scene where Koro and Shinji bathe together after the test. Uh, Koro talks. I think, like, you know, I talked a little bit about Buddhism and Taoism earlier. I think Koro in particular feels, like, extremely Buddhist. And it's just like, yeah, human beings are fundamentally lonely and just suffer. And they, like, try to use others to forget that they're lonely so that they can go on living. And also, your heart is like glass, and I love you. That's why I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, uh, you know, after... There's some scene, too, that's, like a lot i'm it's at this point where i'm like i know it's much shorter in the the show and in my mind i just think of the scene in the manga where like there's a very horny kiss and things um but uh you know there's a scene of them like shinji sleeps at Kuaru's house or something um yeah and they talk a little he has bit like there a closet well. at nerve that they let him sleep in. yeah <laughs> um and then Koru activates unit two from outside the cockpit, um, goes down with it into, I, I like to just refer to it as the basement of nerve. Um, <laughs> I know that the, there's an actual name for it, but I'm just like, they go down to the basement um, and tries to initiate the third, the third impact, but finds that the crucified figure is Lilith, not Adam. Shocking surprise. Uh, we care very much about this lore on this podcast. Um, anyway, a fight <laughs> ensues between Shinji and unit one. Uh, and then unit two and culminates with Shinji holding Koru in his hand and Koru basically being like, you have to kill me in order to keep living. And then, you know, there, there's some uh, multiple shots of, you know, holding in the hand, uh, splash in the water, bloody hand, things like that, uh, that I may or may not have screenshotted and sent to someone saying, fuck me like this. So, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but no, it's it's much hornier in the manga, actually. So yeah, I, I feel like we should talk about the episode first, and then I can go like way into Koro manga shit because it'll be an entire tangent, and let's like let the episode breathe first. Yeah, uh, just since the lore got mentioned, I can make I can make a brief aside about the director's cut. Uh, and why this episode has my least favorite director's cut choice, which is uh, Kaoru has a meeting with Sele in the director's cut. He has a meeting with Sele at on that weird angel statue uh, at that lake. You know, he just loves that place. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and they they reveal that they know, which of course they know, but it's just like they tell Kaoru that Adam is embedded in Gendo's hand. <laughs> so he knows that yeah. Adam can't possibly be in Central Dogma, the basement of Nerve. Or he's just, like, not paying attention to Sele. <laughs> anyway, yeah, they introduced, like, oh, like, the what? scene it's is not, not in the show as it aired on TV. <laughs> they put in this plot hole. Just to make me fucking crazy uh, for the rest of my life. So, yeah, that's why it's the one edition that I'm like, I wish that didn't exist. Uh, I mean, it's like a cool scene. It, like, is staged really, like, amazingly. And Sele have a visual presence that they don't really get to have in the show where they're just, like, in this black room. Like, they get to, like be somewhere else and like you get to see these monoliths just kind of rise out of nowhere uh also it's revealed that they can do that and other people can't see it because misato's watching kaoru and she thinks that he's talking to himself and then (laughs) and then she's watching him from like many miles away and he like turns around and looks directly at her it's a great moment unfortunately really just makes the freaking lilith adam thing even dumber than it was before. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'm literally looking right now because there is also a scene in the manga of um, Koru standing on the statue and talking to Zele, but um, yeah, they don't they do not do that dumb thing of being like, oh, Adam is in the hand of Gendo. Um we we as like a reader see that that happens, but they do not tell that to Koru. Um, and also, we just get a lot of Koru being a brat, which we'll get into when I get to the manga. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is a shame that Koru is only in one episode. I uh, I don't have many notes on this episode. I don't know if anybody wants to get into a more directed discussion about it. Yeah, I will open it up to you, maybe, Connor, because most of my thoughts really come down to the manga. Um, okay, yeah, I think um, I'm so used to going last tonight. It's it's just I, I can I can I can I can talk about something, and we can oh, no. go from there. I'll just I'll just I'll just go right into it. And, All right. Uh, um. So, I guess the first comment that I'll make. Just like tossing this out there, um, I know we already addressed like the portion of the fan base. I, it is my understanding that there's a portion of the fan base that is like, this is not a romantic relationship. 
<laughs> okay. I've never, I've never encountered this, but it is my understanding that this exists. Um, and all I have to say to that is just LOL. Um, watch this episode again. Like I knew it. I, I remembered from my first watch through like, oh yeah, that's, that's absurd. Especially watching it now. I'm just like, <laughs> Come now that you've talked off. at length with me, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, also let me have my my gay my gay thing in the show. There's not a a lot, you know. It's like there's a reason what, why I attached heavily to Utena as an adult because Utena is like Evangelion, but ex- but it's about being gay, you know. So so yeah, like this is the one morsel of gay that the show offers up. Let me have it. <laughs> yeah. like utena starts with everyone is gay and then goes from there <laughs> yeah it's it, it takes that as a yeah it's like we run from here um it, as far as the logic of ava the way that like the narrative style and just the way that the show like works i think the way that like shinji and koru's relationship is presented again like I'm not saying that this is uh, I'm not prescribing this as something that should be satisfying, um, but I think it is like very explicit and plentiful for the logic of the show, like very strongly like positioning this as a romantic sexual connection. But yeah, I'll I will uh, throw it back to you because I think you were in the midst of something. Um, uh. Well, actually, this connects to the one note that I did take about this episode, uh, which is, I think I was also responding to something in Neve's notes about, um, we don't spend enough time with Kaoru, so he doesn't really come into focus in the show as a person. I mean, in a, in, a, in another way, he's an angel, but I, I feel mm-hmm. like I feel like the other cool thing about this show is that angels aren't really very different from people. Um, mm-hmm. and, like, as evidenced by Ray, who is, like, at least partial angel, uh, and is maybe the most human character on the show, in my opinion. But, uh, but at the very least, like, I really value Kaoru in the show because he, he for me, serves the same role in Shinji's life that Shinji serves in Ray's life. Like he's Kaoru is the first person who like finally is nice to Shinji just cause he exists, you know, not because he did something, but just because yeah. he is. That's like unprecedented in this kid's life. Like he does not have, he's never had a relationship like that. And I, like, the depth of that, I mean, like, so much of the show comes down, once again, to Shinji. Uh, And so the thing that I mourn is that uh, the psychological depth of other characters is occluded, is shoved out to make room for it. However, it is very important to me (laughs) that somebody is nice to Shinji, (laughs) like, at a very crucial moment when somebody needs to be nice to him. Of course... This also, because it's Evangelion, turns into a 
new traumatic experience <laughs> where Shinji has to kill the person who was nice to him. And I also think that that's really something else because it was only a few episodes ago that Shinji could not even imagine fighting an Evangelion unit that had a person inside of it. And now he's like, the stakes are, are, are similar. He's fighting something that is essentially an angel, but it's also somebody who related to him on the level of a human being and broke through his defenses and became like against all odds, like somebody that Shinji loves. Like Shinji didn't love anybody before this, except for maybe his mom. That's pretty, that's huge. Um, so like, yeah, again, like the main flaw of the show which we can, I, I will probably address again when we talk about episode 26, is that, like, as I get older, I don't... I guess I, like, really sympathize with your experience of the show now, Nia, uh, because, because I am so much less interested in Shinji as an adult. As an adult now. I mean, like, maybe in my early 20s, I, I probably would have still been real anchored into Shinji's particular psychodrama. But now I'm, like, I, I like, mourn for a show that, like, spends an equal amount of time in Ray's head. You know? Um, yeah. Or, like, gives enough space to Kaoru... So that, like, the manga Kaoru is, is frustrating to me, and it's one of the things I vividly remember about the manga. And I like I like the anime Kaoru a lot, and he reappears in the rebuilds uh, and is awesome in those, too. <laughs> but, uh, but, like, uh, and, like, actually gets some more screen time. Uh, and doesn't necessarily develop as a character, but just, like, really just reinforces like why I value him as a presence in the show. And I like kind of wish that we had more of that. Anyway, uh, those are the main things I wanted to get across. Yeah. Um, should I, should I just get into the manga or do you want yeah, to Yeah. I think that's actually probably Connor? a good, I mean, I mean, that's probably a good transition into that. I don't know. Did, if Connor, did you have anything? Sorry. Um, no, no, no need to apologize. Um, I think, all of that, I think you brought out a a lot of the very uh, valuable points that can help us like uh, discuss this. Um, I, I know I have a whole like reading of all of this, but Neve, uh, I think you should go, go yeah. for it. <laughs> U.S. export audio, uh, export audios token sistrate dude i'm going to let the the trans people talk about koru first <laughs> well, um, it's true ally uh, stuff yeah <laughs> so i i have this like whole screen in the the notes i'm gonna like try and break it down a little bit and, and start with specifically anime koru which i have a lot less written about um the koru who we see in the anime to me feels ephemeral um 
is not the boy that you actually have a relationship with when you are like figuring out any sort of queerness, but is the dream you have of like being a boy who can fuck boys. Like that's what like Koru represents. Um, like does not feel like a real person to me in the, the anime and like feels very purely symbolic of we've been talking throughout the series of like the ways that toxic gender roles and especially toxic masculinity is being put onto Shinji and that this episode is like, and now you have to do this like final snuffing out of any sort of queer desire Mm -hmm. um, that you have to like crush it in your hand. And the way that the Korra's death is framed in the anime, like I think in a very intentional way, um, you know, when, when the series starts, we often see Shinji's terror within the cockpit while these like looming body horror monsters are attacking unit one. And we, we often get the sense of the human and the human being Shinji or, you know, we also get the like, here's Toji and Kenji between the, the fingers of the Ava and stuff. But it's like, the Ava is this thing looming over the characters, including Shinji. We get all of these shots of the looming face of Ava 1 behind Shinji in like episode 1 and 2. Here we are, I think the show very intentionally has the final moments never show you Shinji's face while he's holding Koru, while he's like crushing Koru, all of that. Mm-hmm. Shinji has so totally become the monster that looms. Like Shinji is unit one at that point. That That is what happens in the moment where Shinji chooses like, yes, I am going to kill you so that I, as you're saying, so that I can continue to live. And I'm making that choice. And then it is only after that, that we see Shinji like regretting it or talking about like, this is the first person who ever said they loved me and I loved him too. Um, the manga that, version of Kuwaru, again, we spend so much more time with him because he shows up so much earlier. We get multiple scenes where, again, like I kind of touched on this, but um, I'll draw it out a little bit more here. Like, there's a scene that happens in this episode where Kuwaru says to Ray, like, we are the same, and Ray doesn't even really respond. Um, it's a fairly short scene. In the manga, this actually occurs fairly early on. Um, I think it occurs like in the episode where like Asuka is being attacked by the Hallelujah chorus, to like put it uh, nonchalantly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in it, Ray immediately pushes back and is like, "No, we are not the same." Um, in this like very very like I I am like very clearly sticking out that I am different than you. Um, and because this comes up early and also become comes up before Ray dies, like in that body and, and becomes like reincarnated or whatever process, um, her soul is poured into a new vessel. Um, then around when it happens in the show, that conversation, Koru now basically says, Hey, remember that time that we had the conversation and you said that we are not the same maybe you are right. I've been like thinking about it and maybe you're correct about that. And Ray says like basically has a more complicated response now, which is like, 
we are in fact actually very similar. And the reason that we are not the same is like, we come from similar origins and from similar forms. And yet I have had different experiences that have shaped me differently than the experiences that you have had. And that these like, that, that creates some sort of distance between us that we are, are like going through, which I think it is an interesting and meaningful scene to have that like further draws out. What is this like, short line that happens in the show into here are these characters who are like struggling with like the thing that happens here is core. I think struggles more uh, distinctly with I'm an angel who is now a human and I have to like confront what it means to be a human. Um, and it's like trying to connect with various characters, most notably Ray to be like, Hey, I recognize in you that this is something that you're also going through. And like, let let's actually have some some sort of meaningful conversation about it um that i think is really fascinating but the other thing that like it is just so difficult for me with koru is that some of it i really enjoy because he is like very clearly a brat and he is embraceive in these ways that i particularly enjoy as someone who identifies as like brat for brat in terms of my relationships <laughs> um but also he's like an incredible asshole in a way that like goes beyond brattiness. Um, again, like one of the first things we see is him smirking while Asuka is being attacked by the Hallelujah Chorus, um, which is just like a, a terrible scene to then have a character be like, ha, yeah, it's going to be my chance soon. Um, we also get the scene that I know you like remember <laughs> Brad yeah. of Koru str- strangling a, a kitten um, basically when Shinji and Koru first meet and specifically having this thing of like you want what is kindest for this being and yet like when I said like are you going to take care of it you said no and so I think some of it is like fully confronting like it- it's a difficult scene because like I don't like the Koru who will strangle a kitten. And I think it is also playing into like, especially at that point, he has not gone through these relationships that he has with the characters, like at nerve, like the other children and things in this way where he, I think is still thinking of things in like this very inhuman way, this way that feels more angel, like what the show is presenting us is like the angel perspective but I think is also forcing Shinji to confront that, like when you made the decision that this kitten that clearly is like lost its mother in the aftermath of all of these angel attacks and that you are also not going to take care of it. What you are saying is that like you are, you are dooming it to death in, to some extent. And I'm just going to like make that more concrete in a way that, that you are not willing to like confront right now. Um, so it's a, it's like a difficult scene that I have, complex feelings about because part of me hates it and part of me is like this is actually getting into something that's going on with Shinji and his like unwillingness to actually take care of the other people around him and how that is actually a harmful stance for him to take at a certain point and that Koru is saying like isn't it actually more kind for me to end its suffering right now rather than to let it continue to suffer and starve to death without a mother and without like you as a person who will choose to take care of it in the absence of its mother that I think is tying into a lot of themes that are happening with Ava. But again, it's also just like, I don't, I don't want to watch this cute anime boy strangle a cat. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's such a choice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sadamoto. Uh, I like, I like a lot of the, 
changes he deliberately makes to the manga storyline. It's very fascinating. But that was one. I mean, that was one that I, 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 I remember reading it and not, I didn't hate it. I, I think I felt similarly to you. Like it was very like of two minds at the, at the same time. I thought it was interesting. I wanted to see where it led, but also I was yeah. like, okay. <laughs> I think, I think there's also a certain intentionality of like, there was the image of Koru who was built up from the fandom around the anime. And again, yeah. Koru being this like, uh, dream or like a ghost or ephemeral angelic existence of like a Bishonen gay boy. Um, and the manga, the manga immediately being like, no, this is going to be like, this is going to have a more direct con- confrontation with like humanity and cruelty um, that I think further plays out as it goes on. Yeah. Um, and then this is where I also have this like big tension because there's so much like the manga relationship between Koru and Shinji is on one hand much gayer and on the other hand less gay. It's much gayer because like the whole scene that happens in the instead of being like sitting in a Japanese style bath, it's literally Shinji in the shower, Koru showing up in the same shower stall and being like, I need some soap. All I have is this little tiny piece. And Shinji being like, What the fuck are you doing? Like, get out. <laughs> and then Koru saying, like, it's weird, you seem to not want me near you, and yet your reaction is to, like, touch my body when I'm then near you? What's going on with that? And oh Shinji being God. like, shut up, just, like, fucking get out. <laughs> um, and Shades then the whole scene... And you saw there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think, like, it is in some ways intentionally playing at that, um, in a way that, again, is, like, complex in this way of... <sighs> so the, the other thing that happens here is... Um, there's a moment. So how Shinji ends up in Koro's room is that he's literally getting incredibly angry. Like Shinji's getting incredibly angry at Koro about stuff that happened around. Like, why weren't you helping out these? You know, I think it's specifically Asuka. Like you were like smirking about this and everything. Um, and it's like basically like getting incredibly angry at Koro and then is breathing so heavily that he passes out. And then Koro like takes him back to his room being like, you were like incapacitated and I didn't know what to do with you. Um, and then the ends up Shinji ends up spending the night and ends up having another panic attack. And Koru's like, Oh, I know about CPR. I'm going to like crawl up on top of you and just do the horniest CPR kiss <laughs> possible. It's like, it's incredibly horny and gay. Oh my um, God. But it's also like contextualized. And this is the other thing too, and it's interesting to me because the the manga does not do the Misato is going into a spiral. What she needs is Kachi to kiss her. Instead, it's this like they're about to kiss while they're talking about something, and then Asuka interrupts um, in the manga. And part of me is like, it's weird that they don't do that because I feel like it would be an interesting parallel if that if that scene with like Misato and Kaji happens to then have like here I am as this gay boy who's like incredibly infatuated with Shinji, I'm seeing you having a panic attack and I'm going to try and help you by kissing you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which again has like, like I have this note here of like part of it too, is I'm reading this. And again, I, I am a brat and I think I've told this story in the podcast before, but I'll tell it now so that you have it. Brad, there, there was a part where, um, 
Emily was feeling comfortable enough around Connor that we were hanging out. And uh, normally Emily is like, really doesn't talk to people that she doesn't know very well. Um, and she'll like start talking more and opening up. And it hit this level of comfort where she was fine just being like incredibly bratty to me. And I was being really bratty to her. And at one point, Connor just said like, do I need to leave? Like, are you all fighting? And we just started laughing. We're like, no, like this is like literally how we are normally. This is like how we express affection for each other is that we like tease each other and make fun of each other constantly. Um and so part of me is like, I can see the bratty version of like Kuoru and Shinji, but also is anyone ever going to actually be able to write brats correctly? Because it gets into, again, as it does with Mis- Misato and Kaji, this like weird non-consensual shit that it is that like brattiness is stuff that is often like consensually agreeing to the fact that you enjoy flustering each other. And you're doing it with like within a consensual relationship, <laughs> and like that they don't just they don't show that part of it here. Um, but it is one okay. of these things where I'm like, this is interesting because of how much how much more like Shinji and Koru's relationship actually maps to what relationships I have look like. But then also they're not quite handling it right, and they're handling it in this way that is like implying in many ways that Shinji doesn't actually seem to have any reciprocal feelings for Koru. And some of it is that the show seems to be setting up this like, or the manga seems to be setting up this relationship with Rei, um, but is also specifically playing with the weird ways, which I mean we'll get into when we get to end of Evangelion. But like, Koru and Rei mirror each other even like visually in their designs in many ways. Um, and so there's like also some weird complex stuff happening with like Shinji's attraction to both of these characters. But then the, I think one of the other big things just to like end my manga core rant is also the, the way that the death scene is featured is so different. One, I, I've said this before, but it is, it is way hornier. Um, <laughs> there, there's just like, there's this extended part of Koro being like, if you truly loved me, you would um, destroy me, which I tweeted on my locked being like, when you're incredibly depressed, but you're still trying to be flirty anyway. Um, <laughs> and uh, also it is like specifically framing and evoking the scene earlier where Koro kills the kitten being like, I, I was doing this kindness and killing it. Like you need to do this kindness to me in, in killing me so that you can continue to live on because what I've actually chosen in this moment, um, like even specifically says if I initiated third impact or if you kill me, like either way, my existence ceases to be. And so from my perspective, the, the thing that I care about right now is actually like the affection that I have for you and that I want you to continue to exist. And that necessitates that you have to kill me in a way that's like parallel, uh, paralleling what you were talking about, Connor, with like Ray saying, like, I have to self-destruct because this other option of becoming one with Shinji is like violating his autonomy or his like ability to continue living whether or not like he would actually want to become one with me as well. Um, And so we're like getting it again. And then the moment of Shinji actually killing Koru, what it does is it cuts to the field where Koru strangled the kitten. And it's a shot of like a a full double panel spread of just Koru or Shinji choking Koru, like with his bare hands. Um, and it just becomes so much more profoundly interpersonal. This is not Shinji becoming unit one. This is like 
so much more like two human beings um, in a way that the show isn't. And in a way that is like stuck in my head. And I'm going to have to think about as we finally finish up the manga and we talk about end of Evangelion, um, because I think it is, it is like one of the, the biggest departures for me so far in what is Sadamoto doing with the manga versus what does Ano seem to be doing with the show? Um, and also to some extent end of Evangelion. And I think some of it is just like how much more, Sadamoto views what happens between Shinji and Koru as like a deeply human interpersonal thing and that Shinji's act is in fact like in some ways it it is a thing that he regrets but it is also a thing that like feels more deeply humanizing of him rather than dehumanizing which I think is what happens in the show um, in a way that I'm like still trying to within my head fully untangle and unpack um at the same time, growing up as a, a deeply repressed Midwestern queer, um, the show feels more like my queer repression. <laughs> um, yeah. Whereas the manga feels more explicit with it in certain ways. Um, that's just, yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts and none of them are fully complete, but uh, manga, manga Kuoru, it, it's really something. Um, <laughs> I think I like it more, but I also, I like both, I like having both versions because I think both version, like looking at both versions, draw out something interesting, um, in the contrast between them in a way that's like meaningful to me rather than just being like, this one's better than this one. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want the world where there isn't the show version and it's only the manga version or the reverse. I like the like weird tension between the two. So Mm -hmm. that's me. I always like the weird influx state of things <laughs> uh I had a... that's why i say i'm not sure if i'm binary or non-binary <laughs> i'm in between <laughs> could yeah double double non-binary uh double reverse <laughs> double reverse but non-binary that that works yeah uh i had a few immediate responses to what you were getting into uh one thing is that I like the in- interpretation of the framing of Shinji crushing Kaoru in the show. Uh, it being there, there's we we don't see him struggling with it. We just spend some time looking at a robot uh, holding a guy. Uh, like I yeah, we have to imagine the struggle ourselves. Yeah, we have to really paint it in. Um, I don't like. I like the interpretation that it's like Shinji becoming unit one, but also I'm not sure I agree entirely because I think, well, people can ascribe the, the frozen shot of unit one holding Kaoru as like a budgetary thing. But I really think like, I mean, who, who cares? Like shitty budgets are what create good art. That's, that's the, that's something I fundamentally believe since I watched Evangelion for the first time. But, uh, I think it's a dramatic choice. Like it's, it's ultimately a way of conveying the utter horror and hopelessness and sadness that Shinji feels without having to do it. (laughs) Cause writing it would, would not, I feel like their instincts were right. The translating that particular thing on, on screen directly does wouldn't quite have wouldn't quite work as well within the framework as of the show if that makes sense 
yeah. I I love that we can only deal with his aftermath of it. Because it's almost like also that he just blanks it out. We are not able mm-hmm. to access that depth of psychic pain in Shinji. Even though mm-hmm. we like get really deep into Shinji's fucked up shit, we don't get that part. And I like, I don't know. I love that the show does that. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's about how much he's become Unit 1. I think it might just be about how horrible it is. So, uh, the other thing is that you were referring to Connor talking about Ray sacrificing herself for Shinji because, because Connor mentioned that Ray is into Shinji's subjectivity. Like that's the thing that she wants to preserve. And I feel like, like it's, it's, it's explicit in the manga. It's maybe a little bit more implicit in the show, but it's so, so there like Kaoru who is a being that at least I feel like the angels have some kind of collective consciousness where they are possibly more instrumental than we are. And that's why uh, the wonderful traumatized people of nerve were able to like harness the science so that uh, they could make humans all collapse into a single consciousness. Um, like, Kaoru is aware of, like, the other side of these things. That's why death and life are completely equal things to him. So, he knows what non-subjectivity is. And so for the so for him to have, like, even this episode-long arc where he just falls in love with somebody's subjectivity is, like, super important <laughs> thematically for the show. Uh, and I really love that. Uh, and I think that was it. <laughs> so, sorry, that was a little jumbled, but, but uh, it, it came out. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I again, I don't uh, don't think you need to apologize for anything um, because it was great. Thanks. Um, I, uh, I I do have some stuff here. Um, I don't know how I follow all of that, but well, Neve, do you want to? Do you have anything you want to say before I? Go off no, function. we we can let the straight cis person talk for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, there's there's so much that I would like to respond to in in both of what y'all said, and hopefully I will in the course of doing this. Hopefully I will articulate some of it. So, my reading on like the show version of this relationship. You know, I think in a lot of ways, like, the show, it, it's very tight with its content. So, you know, it if things are given to you as a viewer, then, like, they tend to, to carry a lot of weight. Um, there's not a lot of, like, just, you know, throwaway stuff. Um, and I think, like, the first hint of the importance of this relationship is, like, the tightness with which um, at the beginning of this episode, we see obviously everyone is in crisis by this point, but Shinji is in crisis because we have this kind of like through the whole series, we've had this vacillating, like, you know, these connections and relationships that all these people are forming are like, they're painful and they're kind of making a connection. Then they're not, and they're kind of, then they're not. 
And like, you know, this is so much about what, you know, integral to what the show is trying to say about relationships. But like Shinji at this point, all of his like budding connections have been cut off or like complicated um, to the point of alienation. Like Neve, you were talking about the situation with Ray. You articulated that really well um, of like, oh yeah, I was like having this connection, but now all of this, I know all of this shit and it's just weird. I don't know how to handle that. Um, we just had this thing happen with Misato. You know, his Kensuke has moved away because the city's destroyed. So, like, he has no one and he's completely isolated. And, like, as he's re- literally, like, the show is like, as he's reflecting on this isolation, he, like, sees Koru. And it's so clearly positioned. Koru is like, oh, you know, this is the answer to, like, everything that, that Shinji needs and the answer to like shinji's you know the culmination of his arc in the series and yeah like that totally ends up being the case um koru is like the friend that can get shinji to like open up immediately um they discuss like he's able to discuss his like you know his pain and like stuff about his father um and not only that, but there's like, you know, there, there's a romantic connection. Um, so like all of this stuff about Shinji's like sexuality being frustrated and like all this, you know, tension and trauma around that. It's like, oh, now like there's finally like some semblance of, you know, there's a relationship where it seems like there's, there's, you know, he can realize that. So you know, the positioning of Koru is like, I think it's fundamentally significant that Koru, that the show positions Koru this way um, as like, you know, the, the almost like the ideal solution to like all of these crises um, that sh- of alienation and whatnot that Shinji is experiencing. Um... I think, obviously, like, so how do we understand, like, the fact that Shinji has to kill Koru, um, or, like, has to, or just does, or um, however we want to understand that? First of all, like, I think the the death scene, my read on that is kind of similar to yours, Brad, where I think... The reason that we don't see Shinji in this moment is because, like, just as Koru is, like, the ideal, like, fulfillment of all, uh, of, like, everything that Shinji needs, um, the, like, trauma of having to kill him is, like, the greatest possible trauma that Shinji can experience. And... And that he does, in fact, experience in this very, like, traumatic, escalating arc. And I think the reason that we don't see Shinji, I think what the show is doing or conveying is that this trauma is somehow unutterable or um, unportrayable um, because it is so immense and devastating. And the reason I think that is, um, we've talked before about, like, moments where Shinji and Unit 1, Shinji becomes Unit 1. Um, and it's these moments of, like, 
these berserk moments. Um, and the way I see this scene is like, I don't see it as a berserk moment. I see it as Shinji inside the cockpit, like having to make this choice, but that this choice is so like immensely traumatic um, that it's, yeah, somehow like the moment of it is unutterable. Um, and so we don't see it. Um, we can only like see it through, you know, silence and like behind the mask of, you know, behind this barrier. We can only like imagine it. Um, the thing about why does Koru die? Um, I think that in the world of Ava and in the logic of like, how Ava envisions human relationships. There is the idealized, like, perfect fulfillment that a relationship with Koru, specifically show version of Koru, represents for Shinji is, like, an impossibility. Like, we've talked so much about how, like, being a human in relationships with other humans is a fundamentally fraught thing that, like, entails suffering and entails, like some sense of, you know, lack and alienation. Um, and Koru in the show is not, like, entirely human. Um, he is perfect for Shinji because, like, he was... He says, oh, I was born, like, to meet you. Um, somehow, like, his existence is, like, almost as this, like, ideal fantasy that's not, like, actually possible. And that, like, impossibility is why there's, like, this weird existential force behind Koru's death where, like, yeah, there's a lore aspect to it, but there's also this, like, existential force of, like, if you don't kill me, like, you will die. And, like, I am asking you to kill me because I want you to live. And, like, this kind of fulfillment, I think, is... You touched on like the idea of like subjectivity. Um, I think th this type of idealized fulfillment um, it threatens to like erase the division between people, and like in so doing, you know, both parties will cease to exist. Um, so it's kind of like not only the lore, but um, the logic of the world and Ava's vision of humanity are all aligned uh, in making this necessity um i will say like i am sensitive to the fact that it's like it, it is like a gay relationship that is like snuffed out and i think that is like complicated in ways that that you have that you all have touched on um I don't think it is like, I don't think it is impossible, like, because it's a gay relationship. Um, but those two things are like, also cannot be divorced from one another. But with that said, I think it's significant that the show, like, even though this relationship is not possible, according to all of this, like, logic of the show, um, I do think it's significant that the show positions this like gay relationship as like very as this like fulfillment of Shinji 
um, that like, yeah, it's not possible because like in the world of Ava, like the way relationships work, it's not possible. Um, but the fact that this is like such a good thing is like interesting to me. Um, and again, in a way that like really, um, I think just obliterates the whole like Shinji's not gay thing. Um, like quite thoroughly (laughs) um but uh and again this is where my like reading of end of ava like comes into this because you know i've talked a lot about like the series insisting on like suffering and insisting on like human relationships entail suffering necessarily and this is like dramatized in every character's arc. And this is like the culmination of Shinji's arc where it's like, this is the ultimate suffering, like the greatest pain that he'll have to endure. And I think that's important because in the EOE, in my read, like there's a choice actually, I mean, 25 and 26 here. And also like in conjunction with EOE, there is a choice where there is, an, there is an option of, like, okay, we're going to, like, relinquish humanity and subjectivity and just, like, all become one with one another because then we won't have to, like, suffer anymore and we'll finally, like, escape this suffering. And almost as a viewer, like, you have to see Shinji, like, experience the worst possible suffering and still choose like yes i want to be like that there is value in being divided and in being like human even though i've experienced all of this like i still don't choose this like other option of like relinquishing humanity and that's kind of like my overall read on what's going on here um yeah, I'm, I'm sure I missed. I'm sure I missed plenty of it, but it's, um, I'm I'm yeah. having some like half formed thoughts here. One of them is that I don't think it's can be. I don't think it's mutually exclusive between uh, Shinji is becoming the monster that looms here, and that Shinji is experiencing like extreme turmoil and uh, pain in a way that like cannot be depicted. Um, and that like attempts to depict it would be incorrect and that, or would be like impossible. Um, I, I think, I think both of those are true in the, mm-hmm. the lingering shot of Shinji holding Koru before Koru's death. And, and I think for me, part of the tragedy is that, you know, Gendo wants the third impact to happen, but he wants the third impact to happen on his terms. And in some ways, I think so much of the series is like, how do we get to this thing that would be the third impact? And how do we get it in a way where I have like so thoroughly destroyed my own son to make him like me that he will also choose what I would choose? Yeah. Um, See, in I this was... way that. Yeah, Sorry. in this way that will, like, give me what I want, which is just, like, the ad- obliteration of everything so that I never have to suffer again. And so what I am going to do to you, like, my child, is 
like force you to also snuff out your your queer desire mm-hmm. and it we are then getting this tension of like Kuoru being like like I think the the huge tragedy of it is Quora being like, I want you to be able to choose to like continue to live and have relationships with people. And I am recognizing that like, I cannot be that for you. And yet I hope that like you can have that in the future. Um, and especially this is me like coming from the manga where I feel it becomes more human and, and personal between the two of them. Um, that like some of it is this like, this way that sometimes you have these breakups, but it's now being like horribly literalized <laughs> yeah. of like, yeah. like Quora is basically saying like, <laughs> yeah, Quora is saying like, you should continue to be a gay boy, but it just can't be with me because like, I'm going to be too toxic to you. Yeah. Um, and I like, I want you to continue to live, but I think what's happening in the moment and especially the, the show, the way that it's portrayed and this is also like tying into my fundamental difference about how I think the manga is far more optimistic and hopeful is that in the manga, when I'm watching Shinji kill Kuoru, I'm seeing Shinji kill Kuoru because Shinji is giving Kuoru what he wants. And it, Shinji is expressing his love in the way that Kuoru is asking for it in that moment. And that that is like a deeply meaningful, like Shinji actually leaning into it. Whereas when I watch the show, it is Shinji leaning into I am I am going to like become the the puppet of my father in some ways by like killing this so that his plans can continue to to occur. And this is like again still like half formed. I I don't know exactly how much I'm committing to this other than I'm saying yeah. into a mic on a podcast. But like <laughs> I mean I, I when I watch Shinji kill Kuoru in the show it is so much more of a snuffing out of queer desire than it is when I watch it when I see it in the manga where again, it is so much hornier in this way that it like feels like an actual leaning into queer desire and a leaning into like specifically, you know, I've talked about this also on the show before uh, (laughs) Brad, but like I am into pain play and I'm into like bleeding um, because there's like a certain amount of like the intensity of, of love and passion, like leading to, uh, like losing a certain amount of control is actually like appealing to me. And that's like more what I'm seeing in the manga in this way, where Quora's death feels so much gayer to me. Whereas like it in the manga, whereas like in the show, it feels so much more a snuffing out of any sort of queer desire. Um, but this is also just like my very like strong gut feelings to what's happening. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know. I'll let you talk now. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to walk back some of what I said in a way. Cause uh, I was thinking about it more and I was like, well, yeah, like in a way, not in a way, like obviously like on some level, uh, Shinji is fulfilling the script that Gendo has set out. So, mm-hmm. so ultimately in killing Kaoru, he is fulfilling something that Gendo has designed. And so, yeah, it can ultimately be seen as like, yeah, he's just sort of uh, subjecting himself to the inevitabilities of that script. One of one of which is just like, uh, experienced a gay emotion. Gotta get rid of that. <laughs> it's like, uh, all right, uh, yeah. I I definitely feel you on the snuffing out of queer desire in uh, in as it's portrayed in the show, uh, I, 
I don't know. I feel weirdly about Kaoru's death in the show. I I feel weird about most media I watched before I was out. <laughs> like uh and that and like this one was so formative to my sense of self that I feel like I can't clearly reach uh like a position from which to observe Kaoru's death and say that is uh I mean like I I mean I can I can I can see it as the snuffing out of the surfacing of queer desire in Shinji. But also, I don't know, like, Kaoru is so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, His, I, the, I don't feel like he even becomes more of a character in End of Evangelion necessarily. He becomes sort of like this guide through the metaphysical, uh, like, sub-dimensions of uh, being a freaking uh, black moon full of souls. Uh, but, uh, like... I don't know. I guess I, it comes back down to what I was talking about of like me just appreciating that he's there. Um, and maybe that like kind of gets in the way of me being able to critique the show more finely about its representation of queer desire. Um, so I feel like I give it more, uh, I, I feel like I give it too much slack. Don't worry, I'll criticize it more. <laughs> so, <laughs> do we, do we want to move on to the the final two episodes? Yeah, I think this might be um, a good this might be a good point. I don't know. Uh, did you have anything, Connor? I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just going to add. Like, I think you both are right. Um, I think maybe it was you who brought up um, first uh, about the fact that like toxic masculinity. And all of the conditioning, I think we focused more on it in, like, our earlier episodes, um, but all of this conditioning that, like, Gendo and all of Nerve is putting Shinji through um, definitely plays, like, a part in this. And I don't want to admit, like, uh, that all of, like, oppressive social structures are, like, also deeply imbricated with like all of this stuff about you know complications between like humans uh relating to each other and i think the show is also like making space for that or or uh indicating it in these ways um and i will say about like the the death scene um i think there's something to be said for like that the length of time which the show seems very intent on making us feel viscerally like the length of time that shinji like hesitates which like in real life 30 seconds is like kind of not long to hesitate before you kill somebody um long time in animations (laughs) sorry (laughs) right but you know exactly like in the animation like it is excruciatingly long and there's like that hesitation there and then also um all of those like scenes before of from 
presumably Shinji's perspective, looking at Koru, or Koru being like, you know, like, I want you to kill me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I feel like there's something to be said for, like, Shinji in that moment being like, the last thing that we see in Shinji's mind's eye is Koru asking, like, kill me. Um, and then the long, like, hesitation. So, like, I do think that all of this, like, conditioning of, like, toxic masculinity is, like, at play. But I think the fact that Koru is, is Koru's presence in this scene, like, to me, I, I definitely think um, is a significant part of, like, why Shinji chooses to do it. I don't think it's, like, reducible to... Not that I'm not, I'm not suggesting you said this, um, but I don't think it's reducible to like Gendo's programming. Although that is like unquestionably part of it, um, oh, yeah. I think it's also for the the reason you know. I think it's also because in four core. Gotta love those thirty seconds of Symphony Number no. Nine that we get uncut. It's a <laughs> real uh, cultural diet you get with this show. Uh, yeah, I wonder how much it costs for them to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or it's probably love, public domain or whatever. I love the classical music needle drops in the show. Uh, it arrived; they arrived in my life at a time when I was ready to watch something evil happen during the uh, Ode to Joy portion of Symphony Number no. Nine. And thank <laughs> God, Evangelion arrived <laughs> in my life and gave me exactly what I wanted. Uh, and uh, and also like gave a whole sinister dimension to the Hallelujah chorus, like uh, <laughs> like that's not normally a, a a piece that I associate with deep psychological trauma. And well, I mean, I wouldn't have before I saw Evangelion at a young impressionable age. However, now it's all that's there. That's the full content. <laughs> so yeah, it's very uh, Clockwork Orange. Type feel. All of those all of those are so good. Like they're really well placed and they make like they've shaped my ideas about ways to recontextualize older musics. I feel like I don't know what their inspirations were there, but like I was watching several Stanley Kubrick films at the time probably, and the associations are burned into my mind forever because Kubrick would just constantly recontextualize and distort classical music uh, into different forms and then also juxtapose it with modern composition. Anyway, uh, but yeah, that was... I did want to talk a little bit about about that element of the show because it's not... Uh, it's a very important one to me and I... I uh, yeah, it just continues to stay with me. It's like those are forever associations I have with those particular pieces and also uh, the the Bach air on G in End of Evangelion. That's a uh, that one's really good too. Uh, and uh, and Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah. so Brad, my my programmers taught me a song uh, when they were building me. Do you want to hear me sing it? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not going to. Just hurry up and <laughs> hurry up and take all my hard drives out. <laughs> Um, do we move on to episodes 25 and 26? 
Uh, yeah, okay, I guess I'll get into the synopsis. Uh, um, well, I didn't include this in the part of the synopsis, but Shinji is obviously real fucked up after uh, killing his best friend and potential lover, Kaoru. <laughs> and uh, uh, he's having a real tough time dealing with it and is kind of retreating into himself and having these really intense, uh, you know, psychological monologues slash dialogues with himself and other people as they exist in his mind, uh, as is the pattern of the show. Uh, other characters are also experiencing this at the same time. Everything's kind of breaking down. Uh, and then instrumentality happens. Which is super rad because everybody's all collapsed together and uh, and uh, nobody knows that they're a person. <laughs> yeah. Um, Just a big mindless orgy. Yeah, no, it's yeah. exactly. Everybody's everybody is just just coming constantly <laughs> and is not aware <laughs> that they have consciousness. Uh, there's it's only no longer uh, the the petite mort. Only, it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's fucking Mort forever, man. Uh, <laughs> Mort. I don't know, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Shinji. It's kind of like a dispersed consciousness that's engaging in dialogues with himself and the people who figure most importantly in his life, who, which is Rei, Asuka, and Misato. In order to more fully understand his motivations and theirs and also understand what the fuck is happening, uh, because Shinji is also... It's not... You don't know this in the show, but he's in some control over what's going on. Uh, I mean, like you, they they do actually say that in the, in the show, but it's hard to. It's not made clear. Yeah, once you see End of Evangelion, you're like, oh, but like, I I feel yeah. like if you just like for years, I had only seen these episodes, and it's like, uh, it, mostly it's just down to Shinji's psychological development over the course of these two episodes. I'm not really thinking about necessarily the narrative. It feels like they've abandoned it. You see like little shots. That uh, echo later in End of Evangelion, where it's like they clearly scripted this, but ran out of time and money, yo. Uh, so, uh, but like, uh, it's mostly just we are in the characters' minds. Um, and in the final episode, uh, I guess we can, like, yeah, we should just synopsize them both because they're the same. Uh, but it's just, yeah, it's it's only Shinji. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of, of Rei and Asuka floating around in the beginning. Uh, but it's it's pretty much like, hey, you know. Also, due to money and time, we are just going to zoom in right down into Shinji's bullshit. And we witness him progress from abject self-hatred and suicidality into, I think, finally a place of potential acceptance and self-love. Congratulations. Uh, that is, that's, that's those episodes. They're really good. Actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I, I came. <laughs> sorry, I came to the conclusion when I watched these that like, all right, End of Evangelion is a major work of art in my life. But if it didn't exist and I just had this, these two episodes, that would be fine. Uh, I am really confident about this opinion that this is like the best ending of a show ever <laughs> and uh anyone who disagrees 
does not have the same priorities as me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty much it. It's been like some, th- a lot of, a lot of my aesthetic opinions have evolved considerably uh, since I was a teenager, but that one has stayed the same. Maybe I should rethink it because of that, but I don't know. I don't know. It seems it's, it's, I just watched them and I'm like, this fucking rocks. Like, I'm so glad they did it this way. Um, because it's what makes the show itself. They, they were like, hey, you know, that second half of the recap episode where we just had the characters like totally lost in their own subjectivity. That's the end of the show. And it's just yeah. the the right thing. It's so correct. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, this is something that we might get into when we talk about Anna Evangelion. I don't know how much like I fully want to dive into it now. I might be interested to talk about a little bit. Um, I read End of Evangelion as not just an alternate telling of the same ending, but in fact, a different ending. This is how I've always kind of interpreted it. And my read of what happens, some of this is also coming down to like how I, like Anno State and I think how Anno State influences End of Evangelion in ways where I think End of Evangelion is far more spiteful. And my read of these episodes is in fact that Shinji is not the only one in control here. And it is one of the the things, I mean, the manga also puts Shinji in control, but for, for me, like, I think so much of the framing here feels more direct of like, we are, we are just going to go and look at this one person and not because it's the only person whose choice matters in this moment, but because from the framing of the show uh, of Shinji as the individual, like it's the only choice that matters to him in this moment, um, that it is... I think this show to me more better captures the like deep selfishness of when you are extremely deep into depression and suicidality of like just being so in your own shit that you can't recognize that other people are also going through shit themselves. Um, and I think that's what's happening with Shinji. And that's how I read the, the show focusing in on him, especially in the very final episode. Um, because so much of what happens before suggests that like, Misato and Ray and Asuka are also going through these things. Um, and yeah. in a way that like, I, I, I don't watch end of Evangelion and go, Oh, it, Shinji was in control in the end of the show. The entire time I go, Oh, this is literally a different like turn of events. Um, and some of it is portraying like a different angle, but I think it is also like, I think it fundamentally comes to a different conclusion about, what the the outcome of like Shinji's decision even is in a in a way that again I find the movie far more spiteful, but uh, we can save some of that from when we actually get the end of Evangelion. But <laughs> yeah, I uh, I have always been of the opinion since the first time I saw the movie that they're concurrent. Uh, however, I'm more sympathetic to the idea that they're different endings now. Especially after rewatching them, the last two episodes this time, uh, I don't know if I could really necessarily pin down why. Although your reasons are really good, uh, I like. I I kind of feel like End of Ava allows for the concept that other people are who are entering instrumentality are also going through like 
radical internal Socratic dialogues <laughs> about selfhood. Uh, uh, they just don't depict it in the movie because probably because the the show episode 25 at least kind of accounts for it that would be my explanation however i also like i i feel you like it's uh they could be like considered and construed as completely different endings especially because episode 26 ends on such a different note from uh the movie it's hard to not talk about them together because one is a response to the other um (laughs) ultimately uh they and even though uh, I didn't see the movie for two years uh, until two years after I finished the show uh, because the the DVD did not come out in the U.S. until like, I want to say 2002, 2003. Um, really delayed release uh, as <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't be a Evangelion DVD if it weren't. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it was... Um, it was a real trip to finally see it, uh, also because I had read so much about it beforehand. Um, but yeah, it's it's weird. Um, the relationship between the two is real slipshod, because the little flashes that you see of the end of Evangelion narrative in episode 25 are different. <laughs> like, they're fundamentally yeah. just like, just different enough from the how, the how the events happen in End of Evangelion, that you can totally be like, no, yeah, that's a different ending. Like, Ritsuko's body is intact. Um, like, I guess that's a spoiler, but, like, whatever. <laughs> you know, like, like other things like that. It's, like, uh, just, just enough to notice that something's off. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Um, I, don't know. I, I do want to talk a little bit about just like the form of these episodes, because I think it's something that's easier to do in isolation from end of Evangelion, um, specifically just in terms of like, we, we've been touching up against this in our conversation here, as well as like, we've talked about some moments earlier where it's like, oh, are they cutting corners? Um, like we even did this with the, the clip show episode, which is, I think, actually a far more interesting episode than I remembered it being. Uh, um, it's so good, right? Uh, anyway, yeah. sorry. <laughs> and I, like, I think this show is actually incredibly good at using limited budget and like limited, like he, here is what we can produce. And let's actually do it in interesting ways. Um, And so them specifically, like the previous episode, I talked about how space is like dissolving already. Um, And here we get this like deeper dissolution of space. And it starts with like, we are going to recall, like, we're just going to use old clips. We are sometimes going to put new voices, but we're going to have like, here are obviously like, cells that we have laying around of you know asuka in the bath towel pointing and yelling at shinji and now we're going to have her saying something else but we're going to like reuse those animation frames that we've already produced we're going to reanimate with them to some degree um but we're going to like reuse some of these old assets um there are moments where like i think we get the shot of the shinji's plug suit coming out of the lcl when he's like gone into the primordial fluid um but we get the animatic version of it that they probably produced first before they yeah. then animated it's, it. And they it like intentionally so cool. use, yeah, they intentionally use that animatic one because it just looks cool. But I think also it is pointing towards a certain amount of like 
the animatics in here are are actually to some degree becoming intentional. You know, that one they are intentionally doing, and maybe some of it is to like further support them just having to use it. Like, we can't animate this. We just have to do this animatic of these characters talking to each other. Um, but I feel like it's also becoming like it, it makes it fit together where I watch it and I'm not watching like, oh wow, they didn't have the money to finish editing this. I'm watching it being like Oh, I bet Don Hertzfeld really loves the final two episodes of and of Evangelion because you know, it's that, like <laughs> that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Uh. Um, and like the most new animation we get is the I I believe it's in the very final episode twenty six where it's like here's an alternate reality that could have existed and it's just like a full rom com anime where Asuka is like the childhood friend uh, who's coming over. You know, there's Yui and Gendo, and Gendo's just like always behind his paper. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> they like run into the new girl, Ray, who's got the, the toast in her mouth. And it's just like starts playing. It's just like, oh, we're just like watching a, a possible anime that then got turned into an actual manga. Um, yeah. <laughs> but even that then dissolves into oh animatics and at first i was just like oh they really did just run out of budget like i assumed that they meant to finish animating this and then i was thinking about it and i was like actually no this is like again gesturing towards we're going to we're going to use the animatics to move into now we're going to do the weird like floating through space and there's like nothingness and how do I even process this? Like, let's create a ground, let's separate heaven and earth. Now you can walk around, blah, blah, blah apart. Um, so I think it's like, it actually seems to be very intentional, even in these moments where it's like supposedly cutting corners in ways that, um, I'm not going to say that this is unique to Ava. There's a long history of experimental animation that I think they are drawing on here, but, especially for something of the profile of Evangelion, it's really like interesting to see it here. And I think for a lot of fans of anime, this is like probably the first time that they, I know it was one of the first times that I saw this kind of experimental animation. Um, Even though I had seen a lot of experimental film doing similar things. And like I was getting into animation at the time I was getting into anime. And that's part of the reason why this is one of the first, like, Oh, here's a weird experimental animation things. Um, but yeah, I think like it, it's, I think it's intentional. You know, we've been talking about the director's cut versions of these episodes. There is not a director's cut of 25 and 26. And maybe to some degree it's because you could read end of Evangelion as the director's cut. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some of it is also like an implicit statement of like, no, I want these episodes to be how they were when I created them to some degree, um, which I, I just find fascinating. So yeah, that's it's, my, my spiel about the form of these episodes, but I, 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 think, I think it's like disjointed style is incredibly intentional um, and is actually what I love so much about it. They're beautifully arranged. Like it's a very, they're very well composed. Like, like the dialogue is so dense the fact that I understand anything they're talking about in these episodes is incredible. Um, it's a real tribute to uh, the various translators of End of Evangelion, and also like really exposes their failures if they're like if they suck at it at all. <laughs> uh, like this, yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's just like the images, like they never feel completely recycled. 
uh, although maybe I am just like, you know, I've seen this show. I, I can't even count how many times. And maybe I am just, you know, I've drunk so much Kool-Aid that it tastes like water to me. It's uh, <laughs> um, a good expression. It's, but it's just like, I don't even notice really that it's recycled. Uh, it's rearranged and decontextualized so much and used in such a way that like almost feels like it's replaying a memory of the show, but in a way that it's remembered slightly wrong. Um, yeah. Like it that, feels thematic. It's yeah, it's thematic. It's part of like this, like all of the troubles that these characters have even processing their relationships with other people. Like there's this weird kind of decay going on. Um, uh, which also represents the way that everybody is decaying into each other. <laughs> Man, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's like, to me, it's just like incredible. Uh, it's almost staggering and very hard for me to talk about. I did want to say though, that, uh, my least favorite, like two minutes in the show are the alternate anime reality rom-com uh it's the only demerit i have on the last episode which is otherwise incredibly perfect and i don't like i don't wish it were not there i understand why it's there i just don't like it <laughs> it's just i just it's just no <laughs> it's not i mean even shinji ultimately rejects it he's like this isn't me uh it's just a version of how things could be, but it's like, this is also not me. <laughs> but but I just love, like, I just didn't like being there. <laughs> and I don't like being there. It's just very, very sexist. <laughs> and it's, you're, you're saying that you are not a fan of the manga Neon Genesis Evangelion Girlfriend of Steel Second, absolutely aka not. Angelic Days. <laughs> Literally, okay, I know, I don't... Hmm. I don't even want to hint at a possible spoiler for the rebuilds for y'all if you don't want anything uh, to interfere with your first experience of it. So stop me we're, right now if you want me to stop. We're pretty sure about spoilers around here. Okay. Yeah. By the time so, we get around to it, we'll have forgotten anyway. <laughs> I won't. So I won't say exactly how this happens, but literally, like, the most disengaged i get from evangelion is when it becomes the dating sim that somewhere in its evil rotted heart that it wants to be <laughs> and like the only time this intrudes into my experience of evangelion is during the fucking alternate reality sequence in the last episode and in rebuild 2 where rebuild 2 is just Another instance of Evangelion playing recursively with its own tropes. But for me, it just happens in a bad way. Turns the entire relationships between the characters into a fucking dating sim. It's like Girlfriend of Steel 2. Um, it's not as bad as that sounds. Like, I can deal with it, but it annoys me and makes me dislike it. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, anyway, 
my official opinion, just for the record, is that uh, Rebuild 3, 3.0, is the best movie ever made. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I just have complicated feelings about 2.0, which is the which contains the stuff I'm complaining about. So, um, yeah. Uh, that's that was a cool uh, tangent to get on. It had no, absolutely fucking nothing to do with the last two episodes. <laughs> so, welcome to Ghost Divers. <laughs> well, yeah, welcome to Ghost Divers. It's good yeah. to know that, that uh, we have something to look forward to. Yeah, the the, uh, the rebuilds are are crazy and are really cool. Um, I like, and they're also really beautiful. Like, it turns out Ava with an unlimited budget rules <laughs> so like surprise yeah uh, uh what other th- things would did i want to talk about with these episodes uh i really feel like ray's part in episode 25 is the best part of the show like the best writing the best visuals the whole thing like just the i mean it's it's a lot of it is echoing stuff that actually already appeared in the recap episode like i feel like it's a very they reuse a lot of a lot of those images uh they love those landscapes that they use a few times in episode four they just like depeople them but i don't know just like the recurrence of these images makes them more like ambiently powerful as you see them they also it also installs you in more of like a sense of an environment that's solid because uh tokyo 3 has totally fallen apart so all that's left is kind of these uh ideas of environments like the weird totally overcrowded daisy field that shinji wanders through once and then becomes part of ray's subconscious for some reason um you know like this is this is kind of the visual field that we're constantly sitting in and it's great and then ray is just having this conversation with herself about how she's not really human essentially but weirdly i'm like this is the monologue that like i recognize the most things in like the most inner conflicts that i that i associate personally with being human are like all lodged in race stuff um yeah, I, 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 yeah, sorry. I, I, so we started this podcast with Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, and like I have very deep feelings about um, a recurring trope in like anime and video games, and Western media does it some, but I feel like anime does this just more often, which is the like robot girl who's trying to become a human. Um, I also talk at length about how I got mad at it with I guess when I replayed Persona 3 Portable in a question bucket so people can go listen to that if they want to Um, but when I often talk about like who are some of the first people who like fill this trope for me Ray is one that I include even though she's not like literally the trope she isn't a robot but it's that it's the same part that like has this incredibly strong trans resonance and also just like human condition like trying to define yourself and feeling fake and um like trying to figure out how you define yourself by those around you and how like your relationships with other people 
are what give you some sort of humanity. Um, yeah, Ray's great. I love Ray so much. <laughs> I uh, I wrote down so I watched the my old ADV DVDs and I like transcribed Ray's monologue, at least part of it, because it was just it was so good. I'm just gonna read it if that's cool. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, you possess a false soul and a fake body. Do you know why? I am neither false nor fake. I am simply me. No, you are an empty shell with a false soul created by a man, man named Gendo Ikari. You are just an object that is pretending to be human. See, look deep within yourself. Do you perceive the almost intangible, invisible presence that lurks inside your darkest dreams? It is there that your true identity lies. No, I am me. I became myself through the instrumentality of the links and my relationships to others. I am formed by my interactions with others. They create me as I create them. These relationships and interactions serve to shape the patterns of my heart and mind. Like, like that's so good. That's such a good meditation on selfhood. Uh, especially the stuff about Ray's suspicion that her true selfhood is in this dark, unreachable, and incredibly shitty place within her. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting emotional just talking about it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just think that that scene is, like, profoundly powerful. It's just, like, a real glimpse into, like, what the show would be if uh, the psychological profile of Ray were its ultimate priority uh yeah yeah i mean i know i also connected a lot with misato stuff here as well um oh yeah i was that's my next note as well sorry (laughs) yeah it is like a meme that i reference quite often is one that says oh you like bad boys i was so bad at being a boy i became a woman But like this whole like (laughs) yeah, that's so good. (laughs) Um, that that's extremely like me and what I'm seeing in Misato, which is this like this desire to, um, you know, I think Misato is like more tragically connected to cis heteronormativity than me. But for me, like, there's a certain amount of I I also describe like i am a self-professed unapologetic faggot (laughs) um that is also part of and that's like specifically leaning leaning into like this certain um bad or like this thing of queerness that is supposed to be scary for people um it's like something that i want to lean into and there's just a certain amount of misato being like wanting to like embody this form of femininity and then also struggling against like the way that that is characterized as like slutty or um, those kinds of behaviors by society and like the way that that gets internalized. So yeah, I, I love her whole bit of like, I, you know, our whole rewriting just like focus on Ray and Misato. Those are the two I identify with. Do those ones. (laughs) Yeah. Those would be I'm great. done with Shinji now. He killed the gay boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
<laughs> an ally would just let the fucking world end. All right. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, Misato's stuff, like Misato's dialogue is really amazing to me. She is a character of such depth that every time I stare back in into her, it's like, I see new things. Um, yeah, and yet, like, the only note I wrote for this was that she wants to be a bad girl. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> there are zero oceans of significance in that uh, sense. I yes. mean, yeah, I mean, essentially, yeah, it's like the entire thing. Like, she is, uh, she feels abandoned by men, and so she feels she has to use sex to keep them around. Um, and it's great. Uh, it's really great for her. She has a great life. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's, I find the show's idea of Misato having sex is actually a little slut shaming. I mean, I assume that y'all probably feel that way too. Um, even though I think she's going, like, I definitely agree with what you were saying. I think she's going through a deeper process of like, uh, like her desire contending against the social expectations that are placed on that desire. Um, And uh, it's just like causing her to express all of these things poorly and in really unhealthy ways, I think. Um, Yeah. yeah. I also, one, one thing I would add to that is like, I don't know. I don't think that, the dialogue around like Misato and like sex and all of that, you know, we have, I always have to keep in mind like the source and the show is very insistent on like, I mean, as has been pointed out in a couple other like occasions, um, we always have to consider like who's saying what. And especially here where it's like, we don't even, you know, whether or not, like, we can even say that you can be inside Misato's mind anymore is, like, debatable. But if this, this is just, like, her internalized idea of, like, what somebody else might say, it's so complicated that, like, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say, like, this is what the show is, like, positing as true. This is, like, it, what, you know, the, like, characters are saying for, like, various reasons. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Um, I feel like the show just like reinforces it to a degree where I'm like, hmm, <laughs> like, so it, it like sets off a weird alarm bell in the back of my mind, but it's not overt. Uh, yeah. and yeah, and it definitely might just be like an internalized echo chamber of like the social expect- expectation that she's familiar with, uh, that she wants to live up to because she's a you know, a professional woman who lives up to her expectations, except she wants to totally destroy all of that at the same time. So, um, yeah, some of this comes down to like, I think there are really, I agree with you, Connor, that there are, I don't think that the show is like necessarily giving us, here's the final truth that like, Oh, Misato is being a slut and is like shaming her for that. Um, because I, I think so much of the show is like 
the show again and again pairs off characters because it is like specifically interested in how those characters view each other in ways that like I think often deny any kind of final objective reading on anyone and mm. their actions. Um, and I think that's so like, I'm going to say that part first. The second part here is going back to my comments of, I think if Anno met me, he would hate me um, again. Maybe that's changed. Maybe he's gotten better. I haven't watched the rebuild movies other than the first one. <laughs> um, but I think some of it too, is that there are moments when I'm watching it where I think like this, this comes up a lot for me with Misato and Kaji where I think there are ways that like me or my friends could write that relationship that would further draw out and portray those things in ways that would be like, would would latch onto what's interesting and not fall into what I think sometimes happens with Evangelion, which is that I think there is like, it, it is hard to fully point to because again, what I said previously about like the way that the show present these presents these things, it's like so hard to unpack. What if this is some misogyny that I'm reading into Anno and that I have, I feel is genuine because I've read some of the comics that his wife has written and what degree of it is Anno just trying to like portray the misogyny of society honestly um and that that's that is a difficult thing to unpack for me um mm-hmm. but there are these moments where i feel like there is a certain amount of like misogyny in ano and in ano's work um especially from this era and it is interesting and sometimes i think it is interesting in a way of like when i watch a lot of stuff from ano I am seeing some potential like gender trauma that happened with him. And I, I don't know, you know, like I've talked about this on um, hot singles when we were talking about Lou Reed, where, you know, we do know, know Lou Reed was like gay or bisexual and like had sex with men. And yet still there's like, like, I don't feel comfortable calling Lou Reed a cis man because I think there's so clearly like gender trauma happening when I look at his, um, like musical output, his lyrics, things like that. Oh, absolutely. That, um, <laughs> and I, I'm seeing that in Anno as well. And so in, to some degree, like part of what becomes interesting to me is I think there's a certain misogyny in Anno. And yet some of it, I think also feels tied up in self-hatred in the way that I know that before I was out, I think I probably also expressed misogynistic like things because it was tied up into my own self-hatred of like my own femininity. Um, and so that's why it's really interesting for me in Evangelion. And it, it's also one of those things where I'm like, especially if like I could time travel and go back to the Anno who made, especially end of Evangelion, I think he would hate me. And I think he would hate me because I had like escaped from whatever shit he was going through and hopefully he's gotten through it and is better now and wouldn't hate <laughs> me now but i don't when i watch these works it's just like a gut feeling i think you sometimes have as a trans person where you're watching something and you're like this is really interesting and yet i also know that this person might despise me and in ano it's so interesting to me because i'm like i think he despises me because of how similar we are <laughs> um, so. uh, yeah, yeah I, no oh sorry no go, go ahead um, I, the really like key works of art in my life, or at least like film in film and animation, I feel like are really full of stuff by people, by men who 
were misogynistic in such a way that they kind of broke through it and accessed female subjectivity by accident of empathy. Uh, and I think Anno is one of those people. Uh, I don't know if that made sense. So make, so feel free to ask me to unpack that if, if you need, um, but, uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, it's just, uh, this is similar to how I feel about, uh, David Lynch and his work in Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, especially. Uh, and I also feel this way very strongly about this 1980 movie, this kind of not really a horror movie, but like described as a horror movie, but mostly like this real hodgepodge of genres uh, called Possession, um, where the director wrote it directly about his divorce and like obviously did not like his wife. And this comes through 100% in the movie, but he wrote it like he got so into the writing of it that he understood his wife's perspective at the other end and then it became a different movie as it progressed like where it like ultimately prioritizes her subjectivity in the relationship and then he is the horrible person like the character who is playing him um yeah uh i unfortunately i really like uh the fucking crazy stupid art projects of straight men that end up in this place. Um, I don't know what to do about that. Unfortunately, (laughs) it's just my curse. (laughs) I am cursed to, uh, it's like being cursed to love straight men, which is also probably true. (laughs) So, uh, there you go. Um, Any, any final thoughts, Connor? (laughs) I mean, I haven't even gotten into like reading my read of this episode. Oh no, yeah, of course. Sorry, we've got more to go. <laughs> no, no, it's just I wanted to let you all enjoy it because, like, I'm going to be such a downer with like my perspective on this. But what what I will say, like, by way of responding, is I don't discount like any of what you all just said, specifically like you know your stuff about Anna and Eve. But I I will say like this is where I. I also hesitate, you know, we've talked about like intentionality and like, you know, authorial intention and stuff like on this podcast before. And, you know, obviously we speak in those terms to some extent, but also like acknowledge that, you know, there's, I think we're somewhere in the middle on this. And this is a point where I'm like, I I hesitate to reduce like Ava to Anno, and especially to like a sense of like Anno's pathology or something, because I think like Anno could have been like very depressed at the time that he wrote this, and like that, I'm assuredly like had something to do with, you know. Or at the time that he like created this or whatever, and that surely has something to do with the content. But also, like, I don't think it's, I don't think what the final product of Ava itself, the entity of the show, is reducible to Anno. Um, and I think to some extent we just have to take the show, like what material the show gives us, and at least in my reading of it, like 
I just think that so much of this stuff is relativized. Like, you know, all of this, like, essentializing shit that Kaji has, that Kaji says, like, is, that's Kaji. That's not, like, I don't see that as just being like, yeah, that's what the show thinks. I do, I do, I do love that we keep coming back to Kaji, though. (laughs) Forever and ever. Sorry. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I really enjoy the prior episode where we talk about Kaji, I hope. Yeah. Um, Uh, If I can, like, jump in, I think part of it is, like... I have this tension of like, I agree with you. And yet I also think it is in the show. I think it's in the show in subtle ways. Like, I'm not just saying like, I, I'm saying I'm aware of Anno the misogynist as like a being who exists outside of the show, but I'm only pointing it to it because I am already seeing it in the show and I'm seeing it in, like, I'm trying to like figure out the way to describe this other than to say that like for a very long time before cis people knew that jk rowling was a transphobe trans people knew that jk rowling was a transphobe and it's because it's in the text and it's it's just in the text in ways that like when you are so cued into the microaggressions that you encounter in daily life you are far like when you are experiencing those microaggressions all the time in your life you're so much tuned into immediately recognizing it when it is like when there's something happening in a work of art um, that is also tying into like these worldviews that people have about things. And so it is one of these things where it's like, it's very hard for me to like directly point at here's what makes Evangelion misogynist. But in rewatching it, there's still this like this way that all of the female characters are handled and the way that they the way that they are treated and what what versions are allowed to like whose perspectives on the relationship between men and women are are prized by the show in some ways and it is often someone like kaji in a way that it again like i think some of it is it's interesting because it is true to like society as well but yeah it's one of those things where i'm like it the the misogyny of society is written all over this and it is written in a way that it's interesting for me to talk about it and it's not like like there are some stuff that i watch that's just so completely hatefully terrible that there's nothing interesting to talk about there whereas this is interesting because of how much it is like a seamless part of how this operates in society um but i think it it, it like it's impossible for me to look at it and then be like oh but like it's not in the show in in another way. Like the the show still, I think, hates its female characters to some degree. Even as it is interesting and complicated in how it's doing it, I think it still ultimately like has less compassion. Even as a show that has so little compassion for any of its characters, has less compassion for them in the end, I think, than some of its male characters. Um Gendo excluded because the show is, I think is fully aware that like Gendo is fucking terrible and awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I don't like, I don't know. I don't know if I will ever be able to convince you of this, that I watch Evangelion and I know in my gut that like, you know, I, I talk about Ano hating me because it's the best way to try to explain this, but that like, there is something in the show that is, um, and I, 
when I watch Evangelion or end of Evangelion, I think it's even more intense for me. Although it's been a while since I've rewatched it, so we'll see. Maybe I'll maybe I'll eat my words next episode. Um, but yeah, it's it's there in a way that like I just feel in my gut, and it is me just like picking up into all the subtle ways that this stuff plays out in like daily life for me. So, um, well, uh, I <laughs> certainly do not discount that. Um, and, but I agree with you that like the show can, the show, I think because the show is so focused on the relativism, the characters in conflict with each other and how it's portraying it. That's like part of what makes it still watchable and very interesting to me. Um, and not just something that makes me feel bad. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, it still makes me feel bad, but in an interesting way. Yeah, I think, in a way that it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think this is something that, like, we can maybe address again, like, when we when we talk in, in Deveva. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I will say that, like, Returning to a comment that you made, Brad, about like, you know, these straight male creators like trying to imagine female subjectivity, like there is some, I don't really know how to like reckon with this because I think that as like my like Great. One of my great teachers in grad school, Maud Elman, once told me when we were talking about Joyce, like whether or not Joyce was a sexist. Like everyone, so she says, everyone is fucked up about gender, and I think, you know, I, I think for like cis straight men, obviously, like there's, you know, you you contend with misogyny, but like as a cis straight man, like. In, in theory, like, trying to create a work of art, like, that then presents you with a choice of, like, you know, I feel like creating a work of art is so much about imagining the subjectivity of others. And, like, if you are truly, like, invested in that, like, you're going to trying to imagine the subjectivity of like women is important, but like, how could you possibly do that correctly? Um, or do that in a way that's not like problematic or messed up. Like the chances of you doing that and achieving it are like very slim. So then you can choose to like, not like, Oh, well I will like not attempt to imagine female subjectivity because like, I can't do it full stop but then you create characters who like they're either not present or like they have no subjectivity but then if you venture to do it like you know it's a process of like you you reveal and like contend with like all, all of this shit and of course it's a risk because if you do it like if you fail you can hurt people um and create something that's really hurtful and like you're responsible for that um, but I, I can't, I do think that risk is like, in some way, like when it's undertaken with 
like seriousness and humility, I do think that risk is like necessary to some extent. Um, uh, so the fact that like the fact that Ono is so much like, or here I go reducing it to Ono. Um, <laughs> The fact that the show is like so much like we are going we are going to like imagine the like subjectivity of these female characters and try to flesh that out and try to like give significance to this and like try to understand like the sources of their pain and like I I, I personally I do feel like an empathy there and that's why I like and obviously, like, I can't extricate this from, like, being cis-treating myself. I'll admit that. Um, but that's why I, like, feel not that there's no, like, sexism or no, like, problematic elements in the way that women are presented. But that's why I just have, it, like, have the feeling that I have. Um, in addition to what I said earlier about, like, you know, when certain, like, everyone's utterances in this show like and perspectives on things the show is so like x-raying people and being like at every moment you can be like oh like yeah we can like kaji thinks this way and says this thing like because of like this other shit that is like going on with him so and again none of this is to like discount like your points neve yeah Um, well i think this is also why i say that like part of what makes it work for me and Ava is the fact that I think so much of it is coming from, you know, even within the, like the show is so clearly about gendered trauma. Um, We've been talking about it this entire time for, for many, many hours now, Um, (laughs) not just including this recording beyond that. It's, we've probably talked about this show more than the show is, has hours. Um, (laughs) And like, that's part of why it works because, it feels like it is far more interesting because of how much I think the misogyny of the show is tied up into like the self-hatred and all of this other stuff that's going on um, in a way that feels far more genuine to like how you even begin to start working through this, which like even, I mean, I can't speak from a cis woman's perspective entirely but like cis women also struggle with internalized misogyny um Mm -hmm. and you know as your professor said like everyone's fucked up about gender um and and so this is like a a series that is deeply fucked up about gender um and i think part of what is what is hitting me especially on this rewatch is just that the show and i if I recall correctly, the movie to an even worse extent, I think has not fully has not like made the same strides that I have in a way that then makes it more difficult for me to go back and watch it. Um, because it is still in this like earlier part of my life when I was just so fucked up about all of this and hadn't decided that like, no, I can just be like a faggot autogynophile. It's fine. Um, to be as crass as possible. <laughs> yeah. So, do, do we want to wrap up? Anyone have final thoughts? Um, uh, I, well, we, I mean, we didn't even touch on Asuka, but I guess we gave Asuka her own episode, so, like, she doesn't yeah. really... She just um, is very fucked up, and it sucks. 
So um, I'm 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 very sorry to both of you, but I I want to do like I want to give my overall perspective on <laughs> on this ending really quick. Okay. Um, I just want to get it out there. So it's like definitely obviously this is very like open to interpretation. All of this stuff, like end of Eva and twenty five and twenty six, but watching this now in my perspective, like especially this time, I feel like I have a better understanding of why like end of Eva was created because I think it like, I think end of Eva, I view it as like an extension and an elaboration of what we see in 25 and 26 um, in a way that like completes it as like a, a compliment and tied in with that. I think, I don't think that, what is happening here is like something that is particularly good. My reasons for thinking this are like, number one, like the conception of the human instrumentality project, which like, as we know, was like conceived by Gendo with a certain design. And for reasons that I like on my view that I articulated before um, in end of Eva, like we see how it is initiated and it seems that like, it is given like the Gendo like designs this to give him to merge consciousnesses in a way that is like subordinate to him and makes him this like God. Um, And in end of Eva, if I remember right, like it seems to be the case that that is instead transferred to Shinji and not Gendo. And then Shinji has the ability to like make a choice, um, at the, at the end to either like, you know, opt in or out. Um, <laughs> so I, I feel like that's my like read on what's happening here is that all of these consciousnesses like are being subordinated to Shinji um, in a way that I think explains like the very creepy, like way that all of the women, like women, I mean, it's everybody, but including the women, um, have their consciousnesses like seemingly subordinated to him and his like, you know, re- like psychological comfort and resolution of like his trauma um, in episode 26. Um, I also am like, I am attentive to the comment, uh, the exchange between like Ritsuko and Misato, where Misato points out like the obvious, which is oh, you're just going to, like, initiate this and, like, turn everyone into soup. Like, you're going to initiate this unilaterally and turn everyone to soup and bring everybody's consciousness in. And, like, that's bullshit that you're going to do that. And Ritsuko responds with, like, the metaphysical equivalent of, like, you know you want it. Where she's, like, I think she says specifically, like, yeah, but don't you want, like, you know you want this as well. Um, And then shows her, like, Oh yeah, here's all your trauma that like, you know, makes you really like want this. And I think that what we're seeing here is like a collapse of like subjectivity and a collapse of like a rejection of humanity and a collapse of subjectivity in a way that is not like that is creating some sort of like 
immediate psychological comfort, um, but is not like is not like providing a future. And the ending of it, where it's like, Brad, you mentioned that you hate the like rom com thing. Um, <laughs> I I kind of feel the same way, um, but I see this as like it is Shinji's wish fulfillment that is like oh. happening in this moment. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's got to be there. I'm just saying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally, I, I totally agree. And like the fact that they phase out of it and then what follows, at least as I remember is like, yeah, like reality can be like more or less like whatever you want it to be. Like it could be this or it could be like whatever else you want. And then Shinji is like, oh yeah, like I can exist here. Like I feel comfortable like being here. Um, but here is like, you know, this, this state that has obliterated, like the actual, like divisions between people that like need to be like, and, and this is where I'm, I'm like comfortable in my interpretation saying like the show is suggesting something that like the distances between people are important and like the state of like psychological health or whatever that is like desirable is one that like can accept otherness and like cope and negotiate with like navigating this division and accepting like the suffering that it entails, but like also being able to get past that to the joy, the real joy that like and comfort that negotiate being like a subject among other subjects like and working through that like can provide um and that is what gendo cannot do or refuses to do and that is what i think like shinji does or opens up the possibility of and takes the first step towards at the end of like eoe um when he decides like no um I am choosing like to be divide like that individuals like should exist and I, otherness is like important. I think at the end of both the show and end of Evangelion, Shinji chooses the division. Yeah, like I I agree. I, I don't accept your. I, I don't see your read of the show ending with Shinji not choosing that specifically because the part of him being completely undifferentiated of him floating in the void then leads into we have to like Shinji being like, what do I even do here? And then it being like, well, okay, let's separate the, the heaven from the earth, which is like also pointing towards this Taoist thing of like often that the separation of heaven and earth is like the beginning of creation from like a Taoist perspective or of like this, there is this like undifferentiated Tao and then the, the day is the like individual in contrast to it. And that like one of the first separations that exists in like the human mind is this like concept of like, this is the earth and this is heaven. Um, that is like, like yin and yang, like, Yin is earth and yang is heaven. And that's like uh, one of the key separations. Another one being like man and woman that, that comes up with that concept, which again, like within Taoism and 
is an artificial separation, but it is a separation that like is then a grounding that provides like the the ability for us to experience things. And so the show is, I think, starting to already show Shinji realizing that I need these different forms of separation. And it ends with Shinji being like, I I think hitting the point of oh, I now actually understand, like, I've gone through this process where I got what I thought that I wanted, which is what so much of 26 is. And at the very end, he's saying, actually, I think what I want is these separations because this is what's going to, like, be important and meaningful for me. Um, and I think the the show only gives you Shinji taking that first step. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the everybody clapping and saying congratulations has like this very interesting tension or like push and pull of on one hand, it is kind of, it does feel like a monumental breakthrough to finally even just accept, like I am actually just okay existing in the world. And I want to like live and I, I want to return to it. And like that, that moment of breakthrough, like it is showing the moment of breakthrough when you're going through like mental turmoil where, finally you at least like make the choice that you want to make things better for yourself and you want to like actually work on these things and it it ends like right at that moment so we don't Mm -hmm. see the progress and this is where i actually think the end of evangelion like we'll get to this more but i think it shows the progress beyond and it shows it in a way that is far more pessimistic and that's Mm -hmm. actually where end of evangelion feels more pessimistic to me than the show which the and some of it is that the show kind of just ends with like there is this moment when you are going through depression and suicidality and everything where you like hit the moment where you just like, you want to live and try and figure it out. And that that is a, like monumental breakthrough. And it is also just like, there's still so much work to do. And for me, the whole final scene of the clapping and stuff is capturing that. And it is Shinji saying, I want the divisions and I want to return to the reality that existed, not to some constructed reality that's like meant to please me necessarily that I've come to the conclusion that the reality that I left was actually the reality that was going to like have the best hope for me. Um, And I think that's how the show ends fundamentally. I, I, I wanted to add that I think sometimes Depending on how this is translated and the way that syntax is arranged, this can be like a really confusing part of the show. Uh, well, I mean, this is a really confusing part of the show. Let's just say <laughs> that. Uh, but, uh, but like Shinji's last lines all kind of concentrate around. Somebody can like, who knows Japanese, like I studied it, but like, you know, fuck if I remember uh, most of the things I learned about meaning uh i could i can barely i could never really like even carry a conversation in japanese uh but uh part of what he's saying at the end is like he's like oh i deserve to belong in this place in this place the the that entire construction uh it can be like kind of confusing as to whether he's referring to instrumentality or not but i don't think he is what i think he's referring to is his place among others that's that's the that's the choice that he's making is like he wants to be with his people his his chosen family ultimately the show is gay (laughs) uh and that's important uh that is that is the real thing and like yeah 
So I'm, I'm just going to start wrapping up. If you want to hear Connor and I really yell at each other about whether or not <laughs> End of Evangelion is a hateful, spiteful movie uh, that is just deeply pessimistic or whether or not it is actually the more hopeful ending, uh, tune in next time when we're going to be talking about End of Evangelion um, as well as also the end of the manga. I'm, I'm going to get into it because it's also like a part in orbit for me when I'm thinking mm-hmm. about how Evangelion ends there, there are three endings to me and they are all different. And the, like the contrast between them are important. Um, yeah. So I guess we'll do sign offs. Uh, if you have questions and you want to write into our question bucket, you can write into ghost divers pod at gmail.com. Um, Thank you to Export Audio Network for supporting the show, for, for hosting us. Um, you can go to exportaud.io, which is just a great URL, or it redirects to patreon.com slash exportaudio. Um, you can find links to some of the podcasts on the network there and also support the network, um, support my friends. And uh, yeah, the, the Twitter accounts here, you can follow the podcast at ghost divers pod um then i am fox mom nia uh, where can people find you on twitter connor you can find me at uh Rabelais. um brad do you want to let people know where they can find you on the internet or do you want to remain elusive uh, I, <laughs> I mean i love not having a high profile i am on instagram as unborn whiskey but all I do is post cat photos. I am aggressively <laughs> not on Twitter. Uh, but I, I, I also, I write a newsletter, uh, like everybody does these days. Um, and, but I write it really irregularly. So I'm one of the worst kinds of people who has a newsletter, uh, but it's at hologram of the senses.substack.com for now. I don't know. I feel like abandoning Substack because of the, uh, really transphobic writers that they prioritize, but you know, that's a whole, that's a whole issue. I don't charge for my newsletter, by the way. <laughs> so, so Substack only makes a really minimal money off of what I do, which is a free blog for the people. Anyway, that's it. And the, the final plug here, if you want to watch me read Garfield comics aloud into a camera every single day, you can follow me at Garfred aloud. Um, oh. That sounds like a great account. All right, I'm rejoining Twitter for Garfield. <laughs> Honestly, it is probably the funniest thing I've ever done. Um, which, if you watch it, if you go and you watch one video and you're like, that's not that funny, I, I, when I say it's the funniest thing you. I've ever done, I am, no, I am not talking about the individual videos. I am talking about the project of every single day reading Garfield aloud into a camera. I love It's one of the funniest things I've ever done. I think it's great. Conceptually, um, I am dying. So I love it. Um, all right. B- bye.
Bye, End everybody. of the podcast. Right. Thanks thank for, you for uh, having. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let's do a, a time dot is clap while we're still recording. Refresh the website if you still have it up, because sometimes it gets um, desynced. Six seconds. All right, we might want to do that again. I'm sorry, I jumped no again. No problem. Uh, sixteen. That was good. All right. Sweet. Yeah, thank you for coming on. This is great. This Definitely is great. the longest episode we've had so far. Yeah, yeah so I'm sorry for- <laughs> about that. Uh, I hope it's There's not apologies all around. That's all. Apologies. I, I hope it's not a nightmare to edit. Um, yeah, I had a blast. Uh, I love talking about this show. It's a s- stupid <laughs> pastime of mine. So, <laughs> <laughs> if we ever uh, do the rebuild episodes we'll just bring you on for like all, th- uh, all yeah, three or me four on of for them. like either all of them or, th- or if you have to devote an episode or if you have to split them up between episodes just get me involved in three i would love to talk about three okay it's, well i'm uh, glad you had a good time um after being bombarded with our with our screens i mean um, it was really good timing i was getting a friend into rewatching it so I, and like the rewatches brought up a ton of stuff that I hadn't even thought about before, which is always what happens when I rewatch Evangelion. It's the show just keeps on giving. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I'm now that it's parts that I'm gonna cut from the recording. I'm actually just gonna stop recording now. Cool. Uh, oh, I might. Wanna, or I guess you'll just do the content warnings later by yourself. I hit record now. Um, All right. Likewise. Yeah, I will often take a fair amount of what we record before we actually do the episode and then just throw it at the end mm. as like, here's fun Rivers. outtakes. So, um. so did we, um, In, uh, I mean, I'll go ahead and admit that I torrented this. In my torrent, <laughs> I had like uh, versions that said DC and I was just like, I don't know what that is, so I'm not going to watch them. Uh-oh. And I guess it... It turns out that there's like director's cut versions. Um, In, indeed, there some, are. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know which ones y'all watched, but um, I watched the standard ones for this okay. time. I have watched the director's cut before, but I didn't for this watch through. But um, I think it's fine if there's like some differences there. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, good news, I watched them both. <laughs> so, oh, sweet. Okay. Yeah, Perfect. which you, I've you also can be seen. Our director's cut. Yeah. Uh, you can be the one who jumps in with here's director's cut and I'll jump in with here's manga. Yeah. Uh, no, that'll be great. I, I know exactly what those scenes are. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Cause it's not, it's not too much, right? It's like a few minutes extra. In each, yeah, no, basically. it's just like a little bit. Uh, and it's less and less as the episodes progress. I think the most that gets added <laughs> is Asuka's episode gets extremely expanded. Uh, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I've been reading like the um, some of the synopses. Yeah, it's like a bunch of stuff that's in. I, I don't know if y'all are planning to even watch Death, but a lot of the scenes that are added to the director's cut episodes are also in Death. I kind of wonder if they yeah. did them at the same time, like if that coincided with Evangelion's first release on DVD or something. But I, mm-hmm. I always forget when they actually. The the director's cut cuts episodes uh, the the director's cut 
episodes. I'll have uh, slight reanimations as well. Um, we can get into this when we get in the weeds, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, so I've funny. also been watching the Platinum versions, which has like a fair number of reanimations throughout the like entire series. So, yeah. Um, which like now is just standard practice with anime like dvd and blu-ray releases and things but i feel like ava was one of the first that like got that treatment yeah it was yeah it was the platinum edition was like a big deal it's also because the first dvd release of ava in the u.s was like a real bad transfer um i know and i'm intimately familiar with this because i still own that particular box set of evangelion so yeah i I talked about this where i i sold my copy of that box set like right when the platinum collection was first releasing yeah um knowing that like people would want it for cheaper than the platinum collection was and then used it to fund buying the platinum collection (laughs) (laughs) that's very good that's great strategy uh i sold mine at one point but then i uh, we can maybe get into this as well, or we can not talk about it at all. But uh, I, mean, I, I really love this is like, pod now. <laughs> sorry, that's uh, no, fine. I really love the like. I know it's like it's full of inaccuracies. I know this because like every time I watch it, I'm like, hmm, that's not that's not what he's saying. But I really <laughs> love the first translation of the show, the the original ADV translation. It's just the one that's best written, so I don't spend a lot of time feeling really bad about the syntax. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that's uh, uh, the Platinum Edition translation is more accurate, and I'm uh, mostly okay with it now, but I had a lot of angst about it back in the day. I really hate the Netflix translation. That's the summary yeah. of my issues. <laughs> um, there is a part at the very beginning of this uh, in the recording where I tell people, uh, this is parody, don't pirate anything, but if you're going to, you know, if the only option you have available to you is Netflix or a parodic option, I would go with the parody. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Good. I'm glad we're all on the same page here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We pretty thoroughly disposed of the Netflix translation in like yeah. episode in like intro episode or episode one i can't remember yeah. which one it was it, it was the intro episode because it's yeah. before people would start watching or i'm just like please don't do the netflix one <laughs> or if you do like just be aware that it's gonna be bad in these ways so yeah i, I um, couldn't even watch the fucking movies man <laughs> it was just too depressing i yeah i yeah that was the most exciting thing that ever happened to me and then the most disappointing thing that ever happened to me like both at the same time <laughs> was yeah, evangelion appearing on netflix be, those things so, can often be linked yeah yeah anyway uh, uh, extreme excitement and extreme disappointment um well uh well Shall i mean first of all it's nice to meet you oh, brad you know, oh yeah it's wonderful to meet you too all that and uh yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, it's this. It's a pleasure. I've been thinking about Evangelion for almost twenty years, and I'm now recording. So it so is Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I desperately uh, need to get a new hobby, but uh, but otherwise, I, I'm I'm gonna have a great time. So okay, cool. Yeah, I feel bad because like we have so we've already recorded like several episodes, which you know, and yeah. there's so much like. There's so much just, like, arcane shit that we, like, have already discussed with Ava that I'm, like, I know for me at least, like, 
I'm going to be making reference to a lot of this. And because I just don't know any other way of, of talking about this series now at this point. Um, so I'm just going to apologize in advance if I start like going on about something and you're like, where the fuck did this come from? Um, I'm going to yeah, try, so- try really hard to like, you know, to make that not completely alienating. I want to do the sound- quick. Oh, sorry. As as the person who failed to edit these episodes in any sort of timely manner, where I could send them to you, Brad, yeah. I'm going to do like my quick liner notes on a few of the big things that I think have come up, okay. um, and will likely return. So one is I brought in this essay that is a, an essay that's been like useful for a lot of thinking about the way that anime sexualizes young girls in general, mm-hmm. which is specifically around this character or this uh, actress Misora Hibari and like her starting out as this female impersonator as like a very small child where she was impersonating these like, you know, lascivious singers and like basically doing this like super sexualized act and how that was tied into a lot of stuff that was happening culturally at the time, like post-World War II, where there was the U.S. occupation, um, there was like issues with U.S. soldiers raping Japanese women and the government responded to it by legalizing essentially like child prostitution um like prostitution in general which included like very young girls um and it became this like battleground for japanese cultural identity in a lot of ways and the essay specifically is talking about it in the context of this like performer who at the time was like 10 and was doing like essentially like impersonations of what would be like kind of like not the most intense burlesque shows but they would be like very like like the kind of stuff that you like now we would go to like a campy gay bar and see someone do but it was like this 10 year old girl um including she was also like a drag king um and then she went through this process of like being rehabilitated when she became a bigger star and was moving to the screen um and so they like had to try and rehabilitate her and build her up as this image of like this like pure innocent japanese girl Mm -hmm. um and just like the process that went through with that and i bring it in one because i think it's really important for understanding that like when we watch young girls being sexualized in anime one it's often because like most of the anime that makes it to the west is shown in anime that's like geared towards young men and so like young women being the object of the supposed audience kind of makes sense um but then also it's like part of this long lineage where i think the the u.s can't like wash its hands of it and say like oh this is just like a japan thing because japan has an extremely long history of like specifically sexualizing their young girls for american consumption in a way that is like going all the way back to the u.s bombing them and then occupying them so um I also specifically uh, bring it in because my read of like Asuka is that so much of what's happening with Asuka and there's like actual parallels with Misora Hibari is Asuka being a female impersonator of Misato um, or is like so much of what she's doing is trying to like grasp at some adulthood and what she's doing is she's like the show continues to pair Asuka and Misato like they'll have like Misato getting kissed and then it's the scene with Asuka being like, hey, Shinji, we should kiss, like, immediately kiss? after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they keep, like, having these parallels of, like, Asuka is, like, even without knowing it, it can be something happening in a different scene, is, like, trying to impersonate Misato. Wow. Um, so that's part of my read of, of Asuka. I think that's a useful piece of 
um, information. Another uh, useful piece of information is that I have repeatedly made jokes about how I I am Misato because I'm (laughs) a messy gay bitch and Misato is that, although I think a lot worse than me. Um, (laughs) And also a lot less gay. Um, Uh, Misato (laughs) is objectively the best character in the show. This is something that I've realized (laughs) over time. It took me a while to get there, though. Uh, I think mostly yeah, as, I, I, as an adult, uh, Misato resonates a lot more with me than she did when I was 15, when I first saw the show in completion. So, Yeah, I watch it and I'm just like, oh, of all the characters here that I identify with, it's Misato. Yeah. Um, and then the one other big thing is that currently Connor and I have a big split in terms of... One, I think, a read on End of Evangelion, which is that I used to really like it and now I kind of don't. Um, and I specifically don't around reasons of the way that I've tried, I've tried to like talk through this and I'm still like trying to figure out the best way to express it. But I think if I met Hideaki Anno, he would hate me. And I think he would hate me because of the ways that I, like I escaped from whatever like horrible gendered trauma and depression that he was going through in a way that he didn't. Oh, that's, <laughs> um, that's an interesting so. read. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I get why you would feel that way. Um, in a, in a way, however, All right. <laughs> I, I think I have my own complicated feelings about that too. Yeah. yeah so there that's are, a there are priorities. Like, we'll probably get into it. <laughs> there are priorities in Hideaki Anno's work circa Ava and like love and pop that, make me feel like I agree with you on that level, but also since the, the like, I'm thinking mostly of Rebuild 3.0 that made me think that maybe that's not the case. Anyway, very, very, very strange. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's, I haven't I am, watched, I am unfortunately, I haven't watched 3.0, so maybe he has grown since. I am unfortunately doomed to love Hideaki Anno for the rest of my life. Uh, and, uh, and I will always pretty much feel the same way about End of Ava, no matter when I see it, I think. So it's always going to yeah. be the thing. <laughs> our, um, our, yeah. So the other side of the divide is that, like, I'm, I'm pretty pro, like, End of Ava, which I don't want to, I don't want to burn pot, as we say, because <laughs> I know I'll, like, be discussing this later. Um I just think it's like, I think it's important for completing this series. And I think that the way that it seems to shift the direction at the ending is actually like really important and has a, a, a more like optimistic ending than oh. I, I, I think, I think that's like, I think that's our divide. Yeah, uh, I think I, I think that end of Ava is like incredibly pessimistic at the end. Um, but uh, I, but the other thing, yeah, the other thing I want to just throw out there really quick is like that. So much of that read is contingent on this other stuff that I've been talking about, which is like Ava is obviously very invested in like psychoanalytic theory, and I'm I've been talking about it like through the lens of. Uh, julia christova who like you don't have to know or whatever i'm like barely even doing a decent job of explaining her theory because <laughs> it's mean, incredibly I, complex i read um, over your your notes a little and i noticed i noticed the name uh yeah but i think that's really cool that's great 
Um, I, I just think that it's like it's a framework that helps, in, in my opinion, make some things that the show is trying to do seems to be trying to do like a little bit clearer than they would otherwise yeah. be. Yeah. Um, so when I start going off about that, like it's no, good that, that you read the notes, so you won't. Be I'm there. I'm psyched. Uh, I never read your notes, Connor. <laughs> until, like until you are talking. Perfect. I, That's better. I like I like those perspectives on the show. It's gonna remind me of being a dork <laughs> and like being sixteen years old and listening to the the like really misleading in retrospect, but like so like so much information to dine on. Uh, the commentary tracks that like the the producers of the end of Evangelion dub did for the DVD. <laughs> I used to just watch that fucking movie with the commentary on, because, uh, I don't know, like, a lot of what they brought to the table was a little bit bullshitty, like, a lot of the religious stuff in Ava is almost completely meaningless, just throwing shit at the wall imagery that they pulled from wherever, uh, that may not have any actually symbolic resonance with the themes of the show at all, uh, but the fact that, but also, like, I also don't care. Uh, that like I don't give a shit that guy next didn't mean it or whatever. So uh, I I just like uh, you know I would just lose it over that stuff and like having an extra psychoanalytical dimension, freaking awesome. <laughs> so uh, I'm really excited. Um, this is great. I'm gonna read something from the back of one of the issues of the manga and then we'll do our time that is clap and we'll get into the actual podcast. <laughs> um, so at the back of volume nine, they're basically like, you should read this. Um, I think it's Mark Twain short story, the mysterious oh, stranger yeah. in the context of Kauru. Yeah. Um, and then at the end they say, although the mysterious stranger can also be found in a number of print editions, including the portable Mark Twain from penguin. Ha ha. The story being from the days when MP3s came on shellac cylinders is legally available online at, and they have like a URL that I don't even know if it works anymore. <laughs> um, the same site also has a book called the Holy Bible, King James version, which fans of Evangelion might also enjoy, although it's <laughs> technically editor's choice. And I just love the like very end of this manga being like, uh, you know, Youth pastor turns around, chair sits, says, "You know another person who, uh, you know, died to bring the whole world together. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It was Jesus. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Um. So anyway, let's. Uh, are you aware of what a time that is? Clap is Brad. Uh, I don't. I have no idea. Okay, so there's a website called time dot is, mm-hmm. and it, it that's just the URL, and it like gives you a. This is the exact time yeah. right now. Um, and then we'll just say a second. So it'll be like, you know, 20 seconds or whatever. And yeah. then we will clap when it, when it's like turning to be that number so that our hands are clapping, like when it switches over. Okay. Um, and that just helps me sync stuff up. That's it's okay cool. if you're not like perfectly exact on the clap. But, yeah, but um, it helps. Uh, yeah, no, it's a great, uh, great way of doing it. Um, cool. Connor, you are always better at picking a number that's a reasonable distance away from when we're gonna clap so i'm gonna let you pick (laughs) oh yeah i'm great at picking numbers um all right 52 all right that feel good to everyone we might want to do that again i'm sorry okay no problem do it again um at five okay
Okay. That felt good. All right. Um, now I have to like get in my mindset to start a podcast. <laughs> Hello. Hey, what's up? Not much. Is this going to be our longest episode of Ghost Divers yet? <sighs> Maybe. <laughs> we're we, at, uh, we're halfway through and we're at two forty. <laughs> I feel like um, we'll see. I feel like twenty five and twenty six might not actually be quite as long. Yeah, I. Part of me is like, I want to let brad take the lead when we get to that one because they wrote the synopsis um i believe but also like there's some of it where i'm like i can kind of talk about what happens in episode 25 and 26 but also like we will get to end of evangelion and we might be talking about some of it there as well so mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i think that's a great idea and um I was actually at a point, I don't know if I deleted it or not, but I was like taking notes for episode 25 and at a certain point I was just like, fuck it. Let's just, yeah, let's just do a general discussion. <laughs> hey, hey y'all. How's it going? Hey. Hello. Um, also, let me just say like, I'm sorry I have so many like just screeds on this episode. Uh, please don't apologize. They're all great. Uh, this is I mean this is just what your note taking is like Connor I like jot down a few thoughts I will occasionally write a long screed like I did for manga Kwaru but um you just always have huge screeds and I found that it works better if I just try and limit mine and just respond to you and just go off the cuff um (laughs) yeah I think oh go ahead Oh, no, I'm, like, really impressed with them. It made me think, oh, I would read Connor's recap blog about Evangelion. You know, like, (laughs) it's good shit. Um, And it's nice that you think and and respond to things in, like, this kind of paragraph form. Whereas I have the most fragmented and dispersed mind that I could possibly have, really, given that my... uh, vocation as being a writer (laughs) so yeah uh i just i really like it i think it's great um well that's yeah my uh, very my initial comforting so thank you (laughs) i take notes that are like while i'm watching it my notes are just like me writing down a scene that i want to remember to like think about more so that i can like talk about it or i'll just write like Ritsuko is so gay or whatever. It's <laughs> yeah, a great note. Um always and relevant. then I, I yeah, and then I just turn it into like let me write a little bit more in our actual shared notes document. Um and then I kind of just go off the cuff from there and then sometimes just say the gayest shit that I can possibly imagine <laughs> to see how Connor's going to react. Um, especially when Autumn's also on the call because then they're going to laugh hysterically as I do it <laughs> and just like really encourage me to be my worst self. So uh, that's great. Um, anyway, <laughs> this is the right episode. This is the Yeah, some. Let me do some gay shit. Let's, let's... talk about episode twenty-four. <laughs> Perfect. I can wait. I can wait for when 
Brad is back, but I sent a tweet of mine to our group chat online that um, I think it's just uh, a crucial piece for my reading of Evangelion. <laughs> Let me see if I can find my phone. <laughs> Classic. Um, I I will probably also talk about when we do Ray Earth specifically. My tweet of Ray Earth three lesbians in an open poly relationship move to a house in the woods with their pet cat. Yeah, I just saw that one. Classic. Um. Yeah, Ray Earth. That's gonna be a trip. Oh, a one like one ship described badly. That's funny. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and then down further down, I have uh, Ferio and Fu, and it's are straight people okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I know I'm I know I'm Fu, but um, it's Ferio because you're the hopelessly Fu. straight one. <laughs> Ferio and Fu like really annoy me. Um, one of my favorite things about being just like insufferable about Ray Earth is back when I was on Tumblr, I followed the Ferio tag just because I think he's cute. And it was always fun clicking on that tag because it was like a 50-50. It's going to be either a, a Bishonen or it's going to be a Honda Civic, <laughs> which is the, <laughs> the car that he is named after. It's called a Ferio in Japan. Amazing. Um, Anyway, I don't know if you saw, I sent to our line group chat uh, a tweet of mine that oh. is, I think, uh, an important piece of my reading of uh, Evangelion as a series. <laughs> so. Uh... <laughs> oh, that's really good. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, shall we? Shall we get into it? <laughs> I'm ready. Uh, it's the beginning of the end of... Oh, uh, no, it's the end of the world, actually. The beginning of the end was the last episode. <laughs>